Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Hello, Dark Knight of the Podcast fans and friends and followers. This month, we are doing something a little bit different. Uh, We are allowing each other to have a sabbatical, which is unheard of. We have yet to do this in our three years together, but we are literally coming up on our third year of Dark Knight of the Podcast, and and honestly, we just need a fucking break. I mean, we love y'all so much. My God, but when it comes down to recording two episodes a week... I mean, I have nightmares about it. I think about it. I wake up in a cold sweat thinking about what I'm going to record, having to take notes. I'm sitting there on my lunch breaks, watching movies on my phone. You know, we need a minute away. And I'm about to go into production for my next feature film, Meet, which some of you may be familiar with. And we're currently crowdfunding for it right now. So come come June, I am going to be stepping away from the show for the month um, to really, you know, focus on my project. And so Troy is going to be having a couple of uh, fabulous guests stepping in my place to fill the void. Though I know that's not possible. How could you ever go on without me? But right now, I said to Troy, I said, you know what, Mama? Go treat yourself. Have yourself a few weeks off. Let me man the ship. (laughs) This could go really well, or it could go down in flames. This could be a Hindenburg moment. But honestly, guys, right now, it's just me. It's just me, and Troy is not here. I'm speaking into the void. And so I thought, how can I do this on my own? I really need a co-host to help me navigate this episode because I just can't do it by myself. I can't talk to myself. I mean, I can, as I'm doing right now, but uh, it's going to get really old. So I thought, you know, who would be someone exciting to bring on uh, to be my my cohort for the episode? Somebody who I feel is is working on a project that is something that's really grabbing my attention. And I swear to God, for the last couple of months, I keep seeing in every like Facebook group, every crowdfunding group on Facebook, I keep seeing this title come up, and it's this this short film that's being worked on called Bath Bomb. And like first, it had this really eye catching imagery, uh, and so it automatically grabbed my attention. And then I realized that this is a queer film project. And so, of course, instantly my gay heart fluttered. And then I saw it was a giallo. And I'm like, holy shit, like the best of all possible worlds. So, you know, with no further ado, I'm just going to bring him on right now. I do have a very special co-host to help me through this very exciting episode that will be right up his alley. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I do want to introduce my co-host for the evening, Colin G. Cooper. Hello, Colin. How are you? Hello, I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for asking. And thank you for joining me on this very special episode. You are the first person I've ever had on without Troy. Oh, wow. I'm honored. You should be. <laughs> no, no. But truly, no, this is exciting. I'm I'm both terrified and excited to do this. Uh Troy is like we're like attached at the ribs. <laughs> like, like, so I'm so dependent on him. But I think like considering the topic we're going to talk about today, honestly, um, I feel like this is the right fit. And I think when it comes to the title we're going to be covering today, like 
I have a gut feeling there probably isn't anyone better to talk about giallo in general. When did you form your love for this specific subgenre of film? Uh, I actually had watched a few uh, gialli before I knew what giallo was and that that's, that's what they were called. Uh, and then when I was in film school, they had a course on auteur cinema each semester. It's, they focus on two different auteurs. And one semester they did uh, Cronenberg and Argento. And in the Argento component of it, we obviously watched a lot of Giallo and people talked about Giallo. And that's when I learned what it was. And when I was watching them, um, Argento's as well as others that I s- sought out on my own, they just seemed very queer to me, even though the uh, filmmakers were apparently all straight. The the films themselves ap- appeared to be to be queer. They felt queer to me. There was a lot of queer characters, um, which was rare for that era, late sixties and early seventies. And they weren't, although they weren't necessarily protagonists, they were always key to the plot, um, which was interesting. And then. Add to that the flamboyant cinematography and fashion and production design. Um, yeah, they, they felt queer. So later on, when I started making my own projects, I, I felt that it would be uh, fitting to, to make Giallo from a queer perspective. And uh, if Giallo was to come back, it, it should be uh, owned by, by, by queer people. Hell yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think you picked a really good word uh, to describe it, flamboyant. I mean, I think that that is the perfect term when you think of the usage of color, um, the vibrancy of all of it. Like, I mean, these are always, even at their best or at their worst, they're always beautiful films to look at. There's such a pop to them. And I think that, you know, I agree that it, there's something about it that draws draws you in, especially the queer eye. I know a lot of queer individuals that gravitate towards giallo film. Um, do you have one specific title, you know, that stands out as a personal favorite or maybe one that kind of you feel was like the reason that, that hooked you into being a fan of, of the genre of film? Uh, it's actually the one we're going to discuss today. Oh my God. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. When I first saw Deep Red, I was convinced that the protagonist, Marcus Daly, was closeted. And I had all these like scenes in the film that I felt were evidence of that. And I had taken notes on it and spoke with other people in, in film school about it, straight people. Um, most of whom thought that I was reading into it too much. And then later, when I started collecting Giallo films on, on Blu-ray, um, you're maybe familiar with the company Arrow Video that releases a lot of special edition Blu-rays of, of yeah B-cinema, I guess yeah, you'd say. Sure. Um, there's a guy who does commentary on a, on a lot of them, Michael McKenzie, who he's straight, but he um, he, he had what I thought was the best commentary on a lot of these these. Um, Blu-rays and I looked him up online and found out he was also an academic and he had written this uh, thesis on gender representation in Giallo and there was a section about queer representation and he did uh, a focused piece on Deep Red and laid out all like the exact same points and had the same theory that that Marcus Daly was closeted uh, and he he lives in um Glasgow, this guy. And so I actually went to Glasgow and had lunch with him. Like, uh, how cool. 
yeah, to talk about uh, how queer this movie and this character were. Well, and just like you mentioned earlier, like Jalo cinema in general, like you're very right in saying that there is a, a queer element that runs through a lot of these films. You know, maybe it's because of the era, maybe it's because this is European cinema or, you know, Italian cinema in general, and there's just a more of a progressive mentality uh, to approach this earlier on than you would see something in the uh, the States. You know, you would never see something like this, I think, delving this deep into this kind of material um, when this was coming out. But what do you think it is about these films specifically that like was willing to go there, even in portraying queer characters as, you know, as the villains, you know, or at least not always in the most favorable light, they were still willing to go there. They touched on a lot of these uh, heavy queer elements. Why do you think that is? You know, I've read quite a bit of other academic pieces on Giallo talking about how film, there's theories about um, portraying an ambivalence towards modernization and that there's been conversations with some of the filmmakers supporting those theories. And part of modernization at the time, um, in addition to like air travel, which was pretty new for, for like the common folk, also changing gender roles was was a big thing that was happening in, in modern culture. And I think that queerness kind of is associated with people's fears about gender roles changing because there's something just in the subversion of of norms there's something you know quote unquote queer about even that about traditional gender roles being uh broken and changed so i think it's kind of feeding into those same fears especially when you're casting queer people as the villain yeah yeah and so you're approaching bath bomb as a as a completely like queer piece of cinema is that correct correct yes and it's actually the first of um a bunch of projects. It's a short that's intended as a precursor to a feature that will be the first of several queer giallo features. So for you as a, as a queer filmmaker, uh, you know, approaching queer material within this genre, how does that change it for you? You know, like, um, you know, you're not having to just portray a villain, a queer villain. You now have a cast of queer characters in general. You know, how, how does that kind of evolve your approach to the material? Um, and, and what was your creative process in creating this while still staying true to the giallo kind of formula and style and look while still making this something completely fresh and new um, for the LGBTQ plus community? Yeah, so really just moving, shifting the focus from... Um, queer people playing secondary characters or stereotype characters and making them the, the focus of the piece. Um, in one of the features, there's not, there are no straight characters. It's entirely queer. And then in other pieces where there are straight characters, there, uh, queer characters are, are the primary characters. Not, not trying to say that the ultimate goal of this or any cinema should be to have no straight people, but, um, Yes, it is. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> Just to, to flip it on its head, because I think that's kind of a necessary step before before going in the other direction. Um, but otherwise, we're, we're maintaining essentially the, the visual language of it. There is a lot of visual elements that were unique to um, Giallo, many of which were adopted by slasher um, subgenre. Giallo was pretty much a precursor to slasher subgenre. But many of those elements were not carried into to the slasher that that we're going to keep. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've been I've been excited to sit down and just chat with you because like we have things in common. You know, we're both queer filmmakers. 
we are preparing to start filming a queer themed piece of cinema in June. You're starting production in June, I believe, for Bath Bomb. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's what we're shooting. Yeah. So we are shooting the bulk of, of meat in June as well. So you and I are both uh, going into battle at the exact same time. And I'm just curious for you, like, you know, through your journey with this, you've had some great successes with your crowdfunding campaign. That's awesome. I'm very happy for you. And and I know that could be a struggle. What have been some of the, um, like, what have been some of the highs and the lows of this process? Like, what have been some of the the struggles for you as a, as a filmmaker approaching this queer material? And, and what have been some of like the successes that you've been able to celebrate thus far through the process? Um, I, the highs for me have been, I guess, the team that we've assembled. You know, once we had a script, I put together a pitch deck. Um, a big obstacle that needed to be addressed in the pitch deck was that people that we were pitching this to, whether it was for money or for joining the team, not everybody's familiar with Giallo even. So I had to, you know, in the pitch deck, explain like, this is what Giallo is. And this is why it's particularly relevant to queer people. And this is why I think there should be a queer Giallo. Um, And it was, it just feels good when you, you know, pitch it to people, especially people of note who then, um, decide to take part in the project and, and become excited about it. Yeah. And your, your team seems pretty stacked. I'll be honest. Like, as I was sitting down and kind of going through like those involved, like, it, you know, it's clear that everyone coming on board, this has a solid understanding, not just, not just of, of Giallo, I'm assuming, but just of, of crafting cinema in general. I mean, you have a very impressive team. Uh, please share a little bit about like how you came um, to surround yourself with such a skilled group of people. Cause it's really impressive what you're pulling off here. Well, thank you. Uh, my first, the first person who was involved after myself and the screenwriter screenwriter's name is Michael Clifton. He's a, a queer screenwriter lives in Mexico city. I met him at a film festival, film quest. Um, they do a um, filmmaker speed dating event. And we, we met each other during that event, kept in touch he shared projects he had that were unproduced. And uh, this bath bomb was at the time was a, a one minute project that he had written for a specifically a one minute script competition. And uh, it wasn't giallo at the time, but there was a very giallo image in it, I felt. So um, we discussed fleshing it out into a long, longer script and expanding the giallo components. And then after that, I um, outside of film, I also work in music. I, I work. Um, with a, a festival called Psycho Las Vegas. It's like a predominantly metal festival that happens in Vegas. And one of the gentlemen who runs that festival is a, a guy named Ronnie Exley. And he was kind of dipping his toe into to film at the time and was looking for a project for him and I to work together on. So this one seemed to make sense. Um, it's funny because we haven't even, we haven't even shot this one yet. And his, his, uh, uh, exposure to film has jumped greatly he's in in addition to executive producer on this he's an executive producer on the next uh nick cage uh movie <laughs> called uh long legs which is actually a serial killer horror film and then i wanted to find i knew i wanted a, a queer cinematographer because it'd be hypocritical to be saying that we're trying to you know show queerness through a queer lens and then have a straight cinematographer and kind of the biggest openly queer cinematographer I was aware of is a guy named Jeremy Benning who lives in Toronto, which is where I live. He's most widely known for um, being the primary cinematographer on all six seasons of The Expanse, but um, he's also shot 
The Boys. He did two episodes of um, Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. Um, so I reached out. I checked my social circle to see if I had any common contacts. Turned out I did. Emailed him, sent him the script and the pitch deck, and he was, you know, interested in in coming aboard. So now he's part of the team. Um, our composers are uh, Teresa Wayman, who's one of the founding members of Warpaint, um, which is a pretty big uh, indie rock band. Um, her and her brother Ivan, who is a, a producer and engineer who works with folks like Adele and the Killers and Father John Misty and a bunch of other folks. They're composing it together. Oh, our poster was designed by uh, Creepy Duck, who... Uh, who does a lot of big horror posters, especially in recent years. He did um, Barbarian and Smile and The Black Phone and the last two Scream movies. Um, and then more recently, I've, I've been in conversations over the past couple of days for uh, special effects and props um, with um, a team here, uh, Mark Claussen's group, which uh, they do special effects and props for, for Guillermo del Toro as well. Um, and it, it looks like they're likely going to be our special effects and props team. Jesus Christ. Oh my God. That's like all so very genuinely impressive. It's really, um, wow, man. I mean, good for you. Like good for you that you are, are taking your platform as a queer filmmaker and like surrounding yourself with such talent. Like I can't even imagine what this is going to look like. Um, I'm so excited to see what you pull off with this. Just hearing you talk about it, your knowledge of the craft of the material uh, really, really shines through. And I also want to say, Troy, I, I mean, I'm so bummed he's not here for this episode, specifically because he's Troy's based out of Vegas. He recently just moved to Vegas. Uh, he runs, co he co-hosts Houston Horror Film Festival, but he's now rooted in Vegas. And so... I know he's constantly just looking for people who are either there, like situated there or there with events and so forth for the sake of networking. Cause there is a, a prominent film scene there that is constantly growing and evolving. But yeah, just, I mean, just hearing that, that it's a great networking opportunity, I think, cause clearly, you know what you're talking about. I'm really excited to discuss this film with you. I know you, you mentioned like you've worked in like a lot of your background is actually in like music videos. Is that correct? Like music and music videos. Can you share a little bit about that with us? Yeah, sure. I um, I moved to Toronto, I guess, like a little over a decade ago, and I was working in television at the time as an editor. And I had a a friend of mine that I went had gone to school with who was managing an artist here, a hip hop artist, who needed a music video. I had not really taken music videos seriously because you know they kind of started getting shitty <laughs> after uh, after YouTube uh, became the dominant consumption source for video. And I did the artist called Tasha the Amazon. She's a she's a local Toronto hip hop artist. I did this her first video and her and I became very close and I did all of her videos. And then we had an opportunity to make one for real money. And that video uh, here in Canada, we have much music, which is like our MTV. And we have oh, I'm familiar, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this, when we got to make this video for a bit of a larger budget, we were nominated for a, an MMVA, the Much Music Video Award, and we won that MMVA. Uh, and it's kind of a big show, you know, like the year that that we won, it was hosted by Alessia Carr and one of the uh, what are they called, the brothers? There, there's a bunch of them. 
the the, the Jonas, Jonas Brothers. Yes. Is, it, is it the Jonas Brothers? Yeah. Oh wow, I don't know how I got that, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well done. And, Thank you. <laughs> you know, like Lord was performing in Imagine Dragon, <sighs> stuff like that. So it obviously brings some attention. So then agencies approached me. I was signed with an agency and was on the roster for several years and did videos for you know more well known artists. I worked with um, Under Oath and Silverstein, which are kind of like older. Um, like post-hardcore bands. I worked with Rez. She's a, a pretty big electronic artist who's also openly queer. Uh, Jesse Reyes, who's like a Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter type. She just did a tour with uh, Billie Eilish. Yeah, and then I kind of got burned out <laughs> in the music video world because uh, it's a lot of effort for... The creative payoff is big, but the it's you can't it's you can't like make a living doing it really. So uh, you know, I was still editing TV at the same time that I was doing that, and it was just a lot. So uh, I haven't done one in in quite a while. Wow. Well, still, I mean, like, I feel that a lot of times when you see um, filmmakers who got their start in music videos. Um, you, they have a chance to really kind of like dig their fingers into the artistry of it all and, and kind of get dirty and get weird with it. And so you see that creativity kind of translate when they do finally get to start working on features. I feel like they've experienced a lot of that growth as a creator. So a lot of times they just dive in head first. I love it when you see um, filmmakers who started their roots in music videos. I'm a, I'm a huge fucking music video nut. I love them. Uh, you're right. You know, YouTube has kind of burned it out a bit, but like some of the classic music videos of like the 90s, the 2000s, I am a much music uh, connoisseur. Nelly Furtado is my favorite music artist. Uh, so I prefer Canadian. But yeah, I mean, just, I, I think that that's such a great launching pad for filmmakers who, don't necessarily want to follow the 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 mold of what's going on with film at that time. They want to, you know, uh, kind of do their own thing, march to the beat of their own drum, and and just get weird and creative. And so I'm sure, like having that background, having that history, working in music videos, only elevated your craft that much more when you did translate or transition uh, specifically to film into that medium. Yeah, it certainly helps with with the the visual elements, the big the big leap from music video to, uh, to script it is, you know, can you actually tell a story? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I am thoroughly convinced that you will deliver both within the visual elements as well as the story with Bath Bomb when that does finally premiere. Do you have kind of a goal date in mind for when you want that to be screened uh, or made eventually available to the public? Like what's your game plan with that? Yeah, the game plan so far is to target um, Sitges as our hopeful premiere festival because you know that's kind of the the best, the biggest and best for horror other than than TIFF's uh, Midnight Madness program, but they don't do shorts. Um, so that their deadline is in mid July, and if for some reason we miss that one, then we'll probably aim for uh, Sundance trying to get into you know uh, Sundance Midnight their their midnight screening series which does horror uh, and or Fantaspoa, the Brazil based horror festival, which would, would be the, the next up uh, in terms of the timeline for, you know, what you would consider like a premier level festival for, for a project. And then the idea of going to that festivals of that prominence is, is to, to try to pitch the, uh, the first of our, our feature projects and, and get folks involved. There'll be people from the current team involved, including uh, Ronnie, our executive producer. But um, in the feature world, we we want you know 
more f- folks involved most you know for financial purposes ab- above all else yeah i mean this is very exciting and I, i'm really happy to have you on the show i think that this is the perfect fit and and honestly a, a great uh guest to have on for truly like our first giallo title like i mean troy and i talk about our love for giallos but we really haven't sat down and covered like one of the staples. Um, so I think, you know, you're generously being willing to spend time with me to sit down and discuss this today. This is going to be a really fun conversation um, and your knowledge of the material. I'm just so excited to pick your brain about it. So like if you're feeling ready, I would love to dive into the actual the meat and bones of Deep Red and talk about your knowledge of that. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Let's do it. I do really quick want to take a moment for our listeners. Just a reminder you know, we're going to roll into this review here. Uh, but before that, please just keep in mind, if you do go ahead and leave us a little bit of love on our social media, if you want to leave us a review on Apple podcast, maybe a five star, uh, maybe if you leave us multiple five stars, Troy will come back early and join us for another episode. Um, but either way, you know, consider leaving us a little bit of love. And there's always the Patreon too, where you can find a wealth of, of, of material and episodes that uh, is specialty crafted just for the Patreon. Uh, but today, the focus is Deep Red. And man, this is a title that I have been like chomping at the bit to talk about for a while, um, for an array of reasons. You know, I, I love Argento. I love, I love, again, the vibrancy of everything he creates. Um, and I think that this film came out in a really unique time within his career because he'd already like wrapped up his animal trilogy. It was on the cusp before the Three Mothers trilogy. So it's just before Suspiria, obviously the one that everyone's mind goes to when they think of him. But I think this film perfectly encompasses him at his his strongest moments as a filmmaker. It, it's all on display here in this movie in Deep Red. I think it is probably his most coherent story overall a lot of times i think of giallos and i think that they can kind of go off the tracks a little bit i mean they can they can get kind of cuckoo bananas they can get a little bonkers with with the storyline and i i do appreciate that this film for the most part really kind of keeps it together beginning to end like the story here is strong um and it never becomes completely like uh so far out that you just can't keep up with it you know yeah, he he has said himself on multiple occasions that he doesn't care about plot, so it's uh it's uh <laughs> impressive that he kept this one together. This one and Tenebrae, his his next uh giallo that he did after uh Inferno kind of failed commercially, um are the only two of his and are also just a rare case in giallo in general where once the killer is revealed in the end, you could go back and watch the movie and actually find all of the little very specific breadcrumbs that were left for you to, to tell you who the killer was all along. Um, I feel like in a lot of cases, he didn't really take the time to do that because, as he said, he didn't care about plot. But in these ones, he he did. Yeah, and it shows. It shows. Like, you know, when this movie concludes... Um, I'm, well, I'm satisfied for an array of reasons. I mean, it's a fucking phenomenal ending, but, but just, I I feel like the story wraps up in a way where I'm like, oh, wow. You know, I feel like I got, uh, exactly what I needed as a viewer. Like when I finished this film, 
I am satisfied with the payoff. I'm not left hanging. I appreciate about that about this movie. But it is still, you know, at its core, it is, it is a giallo through and through. Uh, the locations in this are just standout. Um, the richness, the colors of everything, you know. The color palette at times is kind of muddied and shadowed, but when that red blood hits the screen, it's always electric. Uh, and that is such a trademark for him. And, and it really just pops in this movie. I love the usage of colors, the usage of red, uh, even in the opening sequence as you move through those curtains, that the vibrancy of the, the reds in this movie just pops so much. Um, and I know that's something we've kind of come to expect from him, but I just think it's on its finest uh, display here in this movie, his usage of his color palette. Yeah, for sure, for sure. That uh, opening, the parapsychology sequence is also um, famously uh, Cronenberg emulated it to a T for the the intro to the uh, the interview scene with the exploding head and scanners. Oh my gosh, I didn't even put two and two together with that, but like that makes so much sense. Oh my god, and I fucking love that opening and scanners. Oh yeah, oh my god, that's so true. Going going through the door and through the entrance and the uh, dolly zoom shot through the crowd, crunching the space between the, the audience and the 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 interview. Yeah, interview in the case of Scanners. Yeah, oh, I, I see it for sure. I, I'm a huge fan of Scanners, so that's um, never something I even put together until you said that, though. See, this is exactly why I have you for this. Thank you so much. I expect more of this from you. <laughs> um, but, you know, the opening, this little opening moment, I do want to touch on this. There's this abrupt little opening set. So one thing, one thing I wanted to point out or just uh, lay out on the table before we um, do this is... I'm guessing that you watched, did you watch the version that's on Shudder? I did, yeah. So the version that's on Shudder is the international release version, which is 22 minutes shorter than the original Italian version. And it's hard to get your hands on the original Italian version, but there is a special edition Blu-ray of it where essentially it's, uh, the problem with the 22 minutes is that they were never dubbed in English. Um, So in the full length version of this movie, it's in English until you hit these scenes that were removed from the international release. And then those are in Italian with English subtitles. So I'm very familiar with that version. So as we go along, I can tell you what was omitted from the international version. Oh my God, the gifts you give. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of it's pretty relevant because some of the stuff that the Americans specifically wanted removed was a lot of interplay between Marcus and Gianna, which builds on kind of the um, subversion of gender uh, expectations that that is already in in the film there's even more of it that was that was removed at the request of American distributors I have never seen the that that extended cut I've never seen it. I have only seen the the one that's available on shutter that specific cut of the film so for honestly for me this is great because I didn't even know that this extra footage existed, this additional 20, 22 minutes. That's like, that's like a fucking short film of itself. So yeah, listen, when we get to a point when that's coming up, make me pause and elaborate upon it. Cause I need to know like what we're missing out on here. That's so intriguing to me for sure. A lot of them are, are scenes that still exist and had chunks removed. So yeah, that's what I mean. When we get to those, I'll be like, so this is what the scene was like in the, in the original. Well, and you know, you mentioned even like with this being dubbed, but I've got to say this, you know, oftentimes some of the Giallo films, the dubbing can be so bad. It can, it can pull you out of it. You know, like, let's be real. Like I have seen so many of these films where it's just so flat, so wooden, 
I find it impressive that this film, for the most part, even in the moments that are dubbed, um, it's some of the stronger dubbing work I've seen in general. Yeah. It's actually pretty seamless, in my opinion. Well, one of the good things about Argento is that by this point in his career, he was well-known enough that he could get known uh, actors like like David Hemmings, who, you know, starred in Blow Up, and get them to dub themselves so that the performances match. Because in most Giallo films, even the stars are being dubbed by somebody who's not them. And it's it's, you know pretty awful in in many cases yeah yeah not here though not here and even in like some of the actors or actresses who you know are not necessarily even speaking um you know english it still somehow manages to feel somewhat authentic so i i appreciate that about this film i think that's one of the reasons i don't get pulled out of it but yeah i mean like so this opening moment here it's super brief um, you've got this really quick little sequence where you see like the silhouette of somebody stabbing someone. You see the knife hit the floor. You see a pair of sensible Mary Jane step over uh, and overlook. And then it's done. Like it's one of the briefest introductory sequences to a film I can think of. Um, and it doesn't give you a lot of setup or exposition. It's intentional in that. Um, but it's it's so brief. Like you are off to the races pretty much right away when you kick into this movie. Um, but that opening is, is quite pivotal. It does come very much back into play. I was just, I didn't remember it being such a quick little brief moment like that. It's like you blink and you miss it basically. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good, um, it's like a classic, Freudian flashback, which is very common in Giallo, and it's one of the things that Slasher stole or borrowed or just you know took from from Giallo, and and it set it also sets up the subversion of uh, uh, of gender expectations right away because the close up of those knee high socks and shoes are appear to be feminine, but as we learn in the end, they're they they're not. And intentionally, yeah, it's a very intentionally played. Um, uh, right away you get hit with that goblin score. Um, always welcome in my house and, and I love it. I will say one thing about the score in this movie specifically, or there are occasional moments over the course of the film where they go to this kind of like, almost like disco riff where it's like, it's got like, it's almost got like an uptempo kind of, 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 um, sound to it. And there are a few moments in the film where I almost felt it was it felt like a little disjointed for me like i mean i love it it's so of the era but it almost at times feels like it's not capturing the exact tone that the sequence itself is trying to establish what are your thoughts on the score for this film specifically yeah well this is the first time that argento enlisted goblin and um i you know he was purposely going for like um very conspicuous score as opposed to a traditional atmospheric horror score that would, you know, sit in the background and guide the emotion without being paid attention to. And Giallo was already known for conspicuous scores that tended to be jazz based, you know, like Ennio Morricone was the the most common composer of, of Giallo scores at the time. And so I think he just hadn't, he, he got what he wanted with it being very conspicuous and he hadn't quite fine tuned the conspicuousness, which he did in in later, like especially something like Tenebrae, where you've got, you know, three of the members of of Goblin coming back to do more of like an electronic based score that's still super conspicuous, but 
matches the tone of of what's going on a bit better i think um this i guess this is just kind of this is like the beginning stage one of him experimenting with goblin so it wasn't quite yeah fine-tuned yet and that and that shows to me honestly because like i dig the sound sometimes it just feels like a little bit off from the material itself but like it's a badass soundtrack like i could fucking sit down and listen to the soundtrack beginning to end and be fucking into it um, yeah, it just, it's, it's funny. Like I didn't remember that and watching this straight through again, there were a few moments where I was like, this is just such like a weird choice, but like, I'll roll with it. It's just like the last thing I would have expected in a scene where people are like stalking through a library to have like this fucking like driving guitar rift, bold choice, but I like bold choices. Um, and yeah, this, this whole introductory sequence with that, that European Congress of tel- telepathy, uh, the way the camera moves through the scene, so fluid, such a great intro, probably one of my favorite introductory sequences of his in general because like this whole introduction to the to Helga you know as as she's given this big dramatic speech about her her abilities and the fluidity of it all the the movement the motion uh it's sweeping and it's so grand and this venue is so grand and um you really just get sucked into it right away uh it's such a strong opening sequence yeah there's um in the original version, it is not the opening sequence. <laughs> Tell me more. Oh, my God. <laughs> In the original version, there's a brief scene before the parapsychology conference that is um, shot equally as beautifully. It's Marcus leading um, a band, a jazz band, in kind of a very gothic-looking chamber with, like, these big pillars and the camera kind of orbits around these big pillars as they play this piece. And then, you know, he stops the piece and gives them some direction. It's really just establishing that he's a musician and due to the grandness of the scene, it's that he's a musician, obviously of note. It's essentially him teaching at, at his job, which you never actually see in the otherwise in the film and is omitted completely from the uh, international version. He mentions in the international version that he, he teaches, um, but you never see it happening. Wow. I got to get my fucking hands on this goddamn international cut. I'm sure you've got the hookups. So you've got to make it happen for me because I'm, I'm so intrigued by it. Um, but yeah, so you come in on this 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 panel um, and you're introduced to a couple of characters. Most striking, of course, is Helga Ullman, who, um, again, she has this really great moment here where she's she's rather entrancing to watch. I mean, her crystal blue eyes, even that sensible Bob, the usage of her hand motions. Um, there's such a dramatic flair to all of this. Um, and I, I really love the introduction of this character and where they go with this character. Um, you know, I've always felt that with Argento, for the most part, female characters feel very disposable in his films. And, and she is certainly that you know i mean she she's gone within the the first 15 minutes but he lets her make such an impression right off the bat um and and you know i find that some of these shots that linger on her face again the crystal blue of her eyes looking into the camera she's striking she's such a strong presence um i wish we almost got her a little bit longer but god when she's on camera like she really makes an impact is there more of her in the cut that you're talking about sadly there is not but um but yeah, I agree. She's excellent, and she's one of the few characters who who um, dubs themselves. One of the one of the few performances that is dubbed by this this the voice is the person you're seeing, and you can tell. I mean, there's definitely like a nuance to her delivery here that um that feels very authentic, and and so she's, 
you know, she's sitting there, she points out this gentleman, Pedro, in the third row, acknowledges a set of keys that he has in his pocket. He confirms it. Uh, you know, they ask if he knows her. He says he does not. And then in the midst of her speaking, she suddenly starts to have this very, like, physical reaction to someone in the room. And she, like, starts to regain composure, and then it hits her again. And, and you know, she starts speaking about perverted, murderous thoughts. And she's crying out and spitting up water. I love the close-up on her mouth where the water just comes running down her face. He, yeah. I love that Argento's willing to get kind of gross with things. Like, he loves to show the the beauty and the disgusting, you know, and seeing people drool. There's several times in this film that people drool, and I fucking love it. Yeah, I was going to say that that same thing gets replayed two more times. Yeah, and I dig it. I like that about this film. And I just think it's really, again, it's striking. Um, but this whole opening, it, it really sucks you in because you're like, what the fuck is going on? We're already talking about t- telepathic abilities. Um, and it leaves you on this just very ominous note. You know, this figure gets up and leaves from the, the audience. And she's definitely made this connection with this person. And it's established right away that there is like a sense of dread for her character. There is something foreboding that's going to be happening here. You see a lot of POV shots after everyone's dispersed watching her from a distance. You know that she's in danger. He does a really good job of setting up that she is going to be the first target. Yeah. And that's another of the, um, staples of giallo that was translated into into slasher later as the seeing from the killer's pov it was it was the giallo you know established that that language um but yeah definitely definitely it does a good part of, of of setting up that she'll be killed also because as we're seeing through this pov shot uh afterwards when she's the the theater's empty and she's walking with professor giordani she says to him that she knows now who it was uh, and that she's going to go home and, and write notes about what she saw to send to him. So that's, you know, direct cause and effect motive for her to be uh, dispatched. And even the closure of this moment as it pulls away and the curtains close again, I, I mean, it's such a strategic little detail, but it's so perfectly orchestrated. He, he's so good at both introduction and closure to a sequence, to a moment. And it, it really just a strong, strong opening. And also to acknowledge, I mean, the fact that he can take a grungy, disgusting bathroom and still find such beauty in it. Um, you know, there's this whole sequence where the figure... Uh, goes into the bathroom, is washing their hands, and it's just, just this gross, like, dilapidated bathroom, but there's still, like, this haunting element of beauty to everything about it. The way he frames it, the the mirror, which is very much, like, fogged over. You can't make out the details of whose face is in the reflection uh, as the gentleman's, like, having the conversation with them. I don't know, the cinematography in this movie is just some of his finest. I think it's absolutely breathtaking. I I, I, I think it's just sumptuous to look at this film. Yeah, also in that bathroom scene is the uh, the first shot we get of the gloves. Obviously, the killer's black gloves is another big thing in Giallo, and these ones are like the ultimate of ultimate. At the back zipper with that circular ring for pulling the zipper shot, they're like the sexiest murderer gloves in all of Giallo, in my, my opinion. I mean, get me those gloves just for a fashion statement. I was thinking the same thing. I was like, God, those gloves, like, let's bring them back. 
you know, yeah. 20, 2023 moving forward. I think that's a fashion statement we can reincorporate at this point. And you see a lot of those gloves. I mean, they're all over the film, uh, but it, it works very well. You never, I don't think you ever suspect who the killer's going to be in this one, which is impressive. And when you finally realize who it is, I mean, you're right. You had mentioned earlier breadcrumbs, like looking for the breadcrumbs and they're, they're there. There's these little details that are scattered all over. But overall, like when you finally find out who the killer is, like hats off to Argento for pulling this off because it's the last person I would have expected. Um, but, but, you know, following through with these gloves, you do have this moment coming up here where you've got this like this like long pan shot over this table of children's toys scattered across this table. And you do see the glove like, you know, pick up one of these little baby doll toys and examine it. But uh, this is where one of those music cues like kicks in that I really, I enjoy. I like the usage of the music here. Um, and it manages to take this just like very interesting, but I don't want to say pointless shot. It's just like this long shot examining all of these children's items. Uh, and it still gives it this sense of dread. It still manages to make it extremely creepy. So I will say this is a moment where I feel the score does kind of pop for me. Yeah. Um, also, that whole, I call it the pre-murder sequence, because he does these, he does them in Tenebrae as well, with these insert-based sequences that happen before the kills happen in the movie. In this one, he's using um, something called a snorkel, which is a lens attachment that allows you to get essentially just a, a continuous movable um, macro shot. And that piece of equipment had only existed for a couple of years at the time, and he was one of the first uh, filmmakers to use it. So when that movie came out, and when this came out in 1975, that would have been a, a unique, very unique looking shot to audiences. I mean, still to this day, I think like there's, there's a lot of shots in this movie that feel like they maybe kind of set the groundwork for the cinematography that came uh, for the era that followed. This movie still, it holds up. Like you watch it and it still looks again, sumptuous, uh, the fluidity of it all. Um, there's a lot of motion tracking shots. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of this traditional slow zooms and everything, but there's also a lot of really interesting shots where the camera will like start from a low angle and go to an aerial perspective or uh, just some of the bold motion and movement that you see here feels ahead of its time, in my opinion. Right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've also got this moment worth noting of, of this very specific brown eye in which there is a very heavy black eyeliner being applied around it, like an extreme amount of black eyeliner. Um, but this comes into play a few times. You do see this exact same eye uh, worth noting. Helga is at her apartment or what have you. Uh, she's on the phone. She's discussing her plans to basically to publish her account of what happened, um, you know, earlier in the evening. And she starts hearing that goddamn children singing that chant, the chant that you heard in the very opening of the film. And this is a very specific chant that comes into play. Basically, when you hear the chant, you know shit's about to hit the fan. And so this is the first occasion where it's really utilized in this way. And I just adore the buildup of the sequence. Uh, the fact that they make some very specific shot choices with the scene to imply that, you know, because of her ability, she's sensing things a little bit before they're happening. You see these cool shots, these unique angles of her, half her face with her eye looking around uh, as someone's approaching her door and everything like that. I just find it really impressive that for the brief amount of time that her character is there, they do kind of manage to immerse you in in her overall abilities, her telepathic abilities. Like it's just something that's kind of omnipresent. It's always there. And it's very much depicted in the way they film her on camera. 
yeah, one of my one of my favorite parts of this sequence is when she goes to the door, and before even checking the the, the knob or anything or looking through the hole, she senses what's on the other side and you know recoils from from the door before the killer comes in. It's a it's a very unique beat. It's a unique beat for sure, and it, it's a great like moment of shock um, because you're kind of expecting one thing to happen, but she kind of beats you to the punch. Um, but the door gets busted open anyways, and she does meet a really uh, grisly demise. I mean, which which he's been known for. He's recognized for a few things. First of all, telepathic abilities. Like everybody, there's always somebody in one of his films who's got psychic abilities, and it's just it's just thrown out there loosey goosey, which I'm fine with. Like I'm I'm okay with that. Um, but then also it's like just the usage of sheer brutality and violence. Like when people die in his films. They die horrible, horrible deaths, which I've come to appreciate. But even more so, I appreciate the fact that these horrible deaths are always beautiful to look at. He always finds the beauty in the grotesque. And this kill sequence here, the first true kill scene of the movie, is is just extremely graphic. But it's also just stunning to look at. Again, the vibrancy, the colors, the fact that you see this this uh, meat mallet or this uh, this cleaver raise up and just like literally you just see it go into the meat you see the cloth of her robe separate the blood starts spilling out there are some films of this era or some films just giallo films in general where the effects can look a little bit fake a little bit hokey and i would not say this is one of those films the effects in this movie consistently from this point moving forward i think are absolutely stand out uh, and some of the most impressive murder sequences in giallos in general yeah definitely and it's actually funny you said seeing the cleaver go into the meat because uh, according to argento they used actual meat uh they had a metal plate on the actor's body the stunt double's body and put actual meat on the other side of the plate so that the the person swinging the mallet or the cleaver sorry could chop into the meat without you know risking hurting the uh the performer um, and one of the other things that's great about the sequence that is that is a very Argento uh, trope that other Giallo folks ended up using as well is uh, showing murder sequences almost entirely in inserts. So you never see a wide shot or even a medium shot of what's going on. You see the weapon, an insert of the weapon and an insert of the wound and, you know, et cetera. The inserts of the feet walking across the floor the door opening all that the pools of blood uh you know the droplets of yeah. blood after the murder there's a lot of um heavily suggestive shots that very much imply just how brutal it was w- without actually showing it you're right in a wide shot that's very true but but when you do see it in these extreme close-ups it is it does make your skin crawl it makes in my words it makes your ass tighten uh clench because like it's just so grotesque when you see this this uh, cleaver just go into this flesh and you know of course you use real meat that sounds about right for argento uh and it works here it works here greatly so it's, it's a stunning sequence uh and it leads to another really beautiful moment where you have uh the shot of who is going to be you know the focal character of marcus um approaching what is this the blue bar and you get these really beautiful like aerial shots of him approaching this this like lovely like plaza area where there's this um this outdoor fountain and you see it from a, a, quite a distance, and it makes for just such a great scope. Um, 
again, the locations in this film are rather breathtaking, but I really find this specific location to be one of the most striking in the film because it's so moody, it's misty, it's shadowed, it's dark, but it's such a unique visual to look at. Yeah, and that uh, bar, Blue Bar, they built that. uh, That wasn't there in the, the piazza. And it's based directly, it's a direct replica of the bar in the uh, Edward Hopper painting, Nighthawks. That's so specific. <laughs> but I mean, I'm amazing that you know that. Oh my God. And you know, what? I'm not shocked that you say that that was built there specifically for this. Because if you look at that plaza, it, it feels, I mean, it feels both out of place, but also like perfectly placed. Like it's such a a unique contrast to have this really kind of like unique little neon lit up bar in the middle of this very beautiful plaza with this statuesque, uh, this big statue uh, emerging from this fountain. But it is really just a great location to look at. And it does lead to the introduction of these two characters. You meet uh, Marcus, who is our protagonist, and you meet his friend Carlo, who's basically an alcoholic and is immediately found to be drinking. Like the first thing you see from this character is he's completely wasted beside this fountain. Yes. Um, There's even a, there's an extra 15 seconds in the original version um, where he, he finishes pouring his drink and then tosses the bottle of booze into the fountain. And then he says cheers uh, in several different languages before and drinking in between each one. So just accentuating his alcoholism, essentially. I appreciate the depictions of both of these characters. I think Marcus is actually quite an endearing and likable male lead. Uh, He has a few moments where he says a couple things I find a little bit questionable. Uh, But overall, I think he's very well played. I appreciate the journey that his character is going on, his, his reasoning for wanting to find closure with what he experiences. I think he goes on a very human journey through the course of this film. It doesn't feel exaggerated or unbelievable to me. And then you've got Carlo, who is clearly struggling with his own demons, more so than any of us actually anticipate as we come to find out. But, you know, even through his struggles, he and Marcus clearly have like a really strong friendship. Um, And I like the way they introduce the two of them right away, uh, that Marcus is very much there to like hear Carlo, support Carlo. He is aware that Carlo is obviously struggling with his drinking, but he's also like not seemingly judging him. Um, It's a very um, likable introduction for his character to be as supportive of Carlo as he is. Uh, I think they open this on a really strong note for both of them. Yeah, agreed. Uh, This is also the first scene in the um, Marcus might be closeted theory for the film. Um, Essentially because the two characters, because Carlo is later revealed to be to be queer and Marcus and him throughout the movie are somewhat mirrors of each other if you notice in this scene they're wearing color inverted versions of the same clothing where Marcus is wearing white slacks and blazer with a black collared undershirt and um, Carlo is wearing black slacks and blazer with a white collared undershirt There are multiple times at this fountain in this scene and in a later fountain scene where they're shown standing on opposite sides of the frame um, with a completely unnatural and unrealistic amount of distance between them, seemingly to to purposely position them as as mirrors of each other. Well, there's even like a moment where when they're talking like, and correct me if I'm wrong, does Carlo not like, like almost like 
touch Marcus's face or like jokingly kind of like stroke his cheek at one point. Like there's this kind of like weird physicality between the two of them. In in this scene he does. And also in the, in the 15 seconds that were cut out, he also slips his hand like in between two of, you know, where you have two buttons and you can like fit a hand in there in the front and like has his hand on his uh, chest when he's talking about, um, yeah. And there's, there's more moments like that later, later in the film as well. There's another thing that got cut out that I'll mention when we get to the next fountain scene. That's also pretty key to this uh, element of the film. That's such an interesting like underlayer to have for the character of Marcus. And like, I definitely agree. There's definitely like hints of it. There's elements of it here in the the cut that I watched. But to know that there's even he- heavier elements of it in the extended cut. I mean, I, it's such. Um, it, I'm so curious to like see it in its full form because. I guess I'm I'm curious, like if they really were approaching this story arc with an element of sympathy that I would want to see as a queer man in 2023. Like you know, later on when you find out that Carlo is queer, there's definitely an element of self-loathing that comes out. But then there's also a character that's briefly, like briefly introduced that I think is actually depicted to be rather lovely and likable. And and so I think there's a sensitive eye to the queer culture overall. But a lot of times in these movies there are characters who are struggling with their own internal inner inner demons because of it. Um, And so it does at time provide like kind of a hard pill to swallow um, as a gay man or as a queer individual in general. So I do look for these moments of like more tender nuances, more humanity in the queerness. Um, I can appreciate that. And, you know, talking about the moments where they're touching each other's cheeks and they're like, kind of just like being physically, I don't want to say intimate, but present with each other. Definitely, um, I see that. I sense that. I pick up on that, and I like to know that there maybe was a little more intention behind that uh, than initially anticipated. You know? Yeah, and I think um, given the portrayals of queer characters across the genre as a whole, which are often pretty offensive, uh, there's still problems with the way Argento presents queer characters. Like it's it's pretty stereotyped to have, you know, the doomed gay man trope. Um, but if you consider what the social narrative of queer men and gay men that Argento would have grown up with and been fed his whole life, if you consider what that was, it is a surprisingly nuanced and, and I think sensitive portrayal of queer characters in, in this film and, uh, in Argento's work in general, in comparison to other filmmakers of, of the same era. I agree. I agree. I, and I think that's a consistent throughout the whole film, even with the conclusion, how it wraps up. I still think there is an element of, of sympathy for the character and what they have struggled with, what they've gone through. And again, the inner demons that they're, they're fighting with, at least within that era in 1975. I mean, that was a different journey than what we experienced now in 2023. It's something to acknowledge for sure. So this moment wraps up and Carlo heads back into the blue bar. And Marcus turns around to leave, and we have this like stunning reveal of him looking up to see, in a window, Helga looking down at him. She has her hands against the glass. Her face is just, like, stricken with terror. And he watches as she is, like, brutally hit with the cleaver through the glass. Her body goes through the glass, and she is, like, brutally killed in front of him. And so he takes off running to try to help her. And I think this moment... If I was going to say, like, if I had a top favorite shot or moment in the film, I would I would say this sequence right here is just mind-blowing to me. It's one of my favorite images from the era in general. If we're going to talk about just horror genre visuals of the 1970s, this reveal of him looking up to just see her against the glass like that, and then what comes after that, the kill sequence, 
the aftermath, the glass sticking out of her throat. I mean, it's so detailed. It's so beautiful. But it's truly terrifying. This sequence is stunning. Yeah, absolutely. It's gorgeous. And it's um, it's another Argento favorite is having a murder sequence that involves someone's head being smashed through glass. It happens in, in this film. It happens in Suspiria. It happens twice in Inferno. It happens in Tenebrae. And uh, it, this is maybe the best one, I think. Either this one or the Suspiria Demon Hands one is, is probably the best. I, I mean, Suspiria is definitely up there, I would say. That, that opening, that whole sequence is so mind-blowing. But there's something about the shock factor of him just turning around, looking up, and bam, you get this visual of her against the glass. It's just, it's striking. It's striking. And, and um, you know, at this point, you thought that, I, I think at least, you know, first time viewing this, I remember thinking, oh, she's dead at this point. And then to find out that she's still going, this poor fucking woman. Because uh, just a moment ago, you had the moment where they heard the scream. And you have that awkward moment where Carlo even like raised his glass and was like, to the virgin being raped or whatever he says. It's very off color. But I thought at this point, like they heard her death scream and, you know, they were going to maybe find the body. To have this unexpected moment, great decision on, on, on Argento's part to extend this out a bit longer um, because it just makes for such a memorable opening kill. I mean, you are opening this movie on a, such a banger of a note and it doesn't really let up. And it's funny to me because there's really not a shit ton of deaths in this movie. There's a lot of long periods of like storyline and exposition and development. But then when you get to these deaths, they're so memorable. It's really, it's about quality over quantity in this film. And the quality you get with these kill sequences is just, it's superb. Yeah, it's funny because the violence in this film is some of the the most memorable of his career. But it actually, I think it has the lowest body count of his at least of his giallo films. Yeah, another thing I was going to say in, in her death, if you get really deep into the weeds of academic conversations about Argento and whether or not he's a misogynist, you know, there's the argument that he's used to defend himself and other people have used that, you know, if you make a film, if you write a misogynist character, it doesn't mean that you're a misogynist. So this kill is actually sometimes pointed to <laughs> as uh, claiming that he's a misogynist because it's so ridiculous and you could blink and miss it. In the shot when Marcus is pulling her off of the glass, you're not paying attention to anything but her face and her neck because she is dead on the glass. But if you look just below that, one of her breasts is exposed. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm aware. There's a big old honker just hanging out there. So the, the argument is that the killer didn't do that. It's something that wasn't that you can't blame on a misogynist character. It's it's something that was added to the shot by the filmmaker. But listen, here's the dealio. <laughs> I don't buy it. I don't buy that at all. And I'll say I'll say it right now. There's a time and a place for nudity. Um, and this movie isn't smeared with with nudity. I mean, it's actually this moment is a blink and you'll miss it. Like you said, moment of a, of a breast just being revealed on a dead woman's body. In the, the right usage, nudity, I think, enhances uh, the feeling of discomfort. You know, you as the viewer, if you see somebody covered in blood, that's scary. If you see somebody with a breast hanging out covered in blood, like, there's absolutely, like, there's no way to be, like, demure. <laughs> or, or, like, you know, when you're, when you're being attacked or your, your, your life is in danger, the last thing you're going to think about is, oh, I need to keep myself covered up. You know, uh, I think it makes perfect sense 
in this moment for her breast to be revealed. She is a dead corpse in a robe. Um, and I think it just adds to the the feelings of, like I said, discomfort. I appreciate that hanging breast. I think it makes the scene more uncomfortable for me. So I, I'm going to call bullshit on that. People are allowed to have their opinions. I mean, I hope that you don't have the opposite opinion and I sound like an asshole. But I really think the nudity here, it benefits having that. I mean, I think it's it's pretty obviously not gratuitous also. It's not like it's front and center. Like I said, you're not even paying attention to that part of the frame. I didn't even notice it. I had seen, when I started reading some of these, um, and they're not just like random people's blogs. There's like some legitimate academic <laughs> papers arguing about whether or not Argenta is a misogynist, which is crazy. But um, I didn't even know notice it until I read one of these. And then I went back and watched it. And I was like, oh yeah, her boob is hanging out. And you know, if it's gratuitous, then by the definition of the word gratuitous, I should have noticed it, you know? Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. No, I, I definitely think it enhances the moment. And I'm, I'm going to call bullshit on that. But hey, to each their fucking own, you know? Um, police arrive. Marcus is interrogated about the murder. He mentions a killer that he saw in a brown a brown raincoat walking away from the, the scene of the crime. Um, and it is worth noting that as you see this figure leaving the scene of the crime on the other side of the screen you do see carlo who is standing outside of the blue bar so that's definitely something worth acknowledging because that does come into play here a bit but he's being interrogated and one of the things that he does acknowledge in this in this space inside of helga's apartment is he feels that some of the pieces of art um have been moved or removed this is a a thing that comes up a couple of times here he questions whether some of the artwork had been removed uh since her body was discovered yeah, and this is a, is a pretty standard um, Argento trope, uh, starting with his first film, Bird with the Crystal Plumage. He likes to have, in Giallo films, he likes to have a foreigner witnessing a murder who becomes involved with the investigation, and they always, there's something that they think they missaw or misremembered at the original crime scene that then becomes key to solving the crime in the end. Um, and it actually often has to do with a piece of art. That's such a specific detail, but you're fucking right. Like it's, especially with like the, you know, somebody who's not familiar with the area witnessing something shocking and and becoming directly involved with it. Like when you look at how the story progresses, especially with Marcus, you're kind of like, dude, why the fuck are you like in so deep with this? Like you are a, a pianist, like stay in your lane. Why are you out here playing Nancy Drew? Uh, but he gets in very involved and I get why, you know, he's, he's very consumed with what he experienced, but yeah, that, that is a very specific through line. And you're absolutely right. That is consistent with a lot of his films. Yeah. There's um, also in this scene, there's a couple of chunks removed from the original version um, at the top of the scene. There's about a minute and change removed of that first police officer that he's talking to, who he asks, you know, was anything removed from the crime scene? Right before that, that police officer is, it's its comedic relief, essentially. He's eating a sandwich and asking Marcus what he does for a living, and then essentially makes fun of him for, for being a, a pianist, as though it's not a real job. Um, and then when Gianna first comes in with her camera, uh, one of the cops freaks out and tries to get her to leave the crime scene, you know, implying that nobody should be there until they're done their investigation or their their CSI work. Um, and then the that same cop, the one who's talking to Marcus, you know, excuses the, the police officer and allows Gianna to come. I could have done with that. 
to be honest, because I thought it was kind of bold that girl just comes in with that those sensible bangs. She just walks right in. She's taking photos. She's she's so like strange and fidgety. But God, I really like her character, especially as the film progresses. Uh, and yeah, you're introduced to basically what's his like female counterpart in the film, the secondary lead, I dare say, uh, Gianna, who is quirky. She is strange. She is strong-willed. She's a lot of the traits I like in a female character. I will say that her character does not feel necessarily traditionally Argento because there are several moments here where she, you know, speaks out to be a strong-willed progressive woman. Uh, She doesn't really back down to the man. I like that about her. She feels like an unusually progressive character for one of his films in general. Yeah, for sure. Um, and she, uh, I don't remember if it was his direction or something that Daria, uh, the actress Daria Nicolodi came up with herself, but you know, the little strange little hand movements she does all the time. Mm -hmm. Those are based on, uh, Dario Argento. Uh, Apparently he does very similar hand movements. This was, you know, this is the movie where they first met and then they became longtime, uh, romantic partners and had Asia Argento together. Uh, that's their their child. Wow! Look at this. This is we we, we witnessed the uh, the birth of a love affair in this film, and yeah. and she makes quite an impression. I'll say that. And I love that that little note you have about those details, the little hand motions, because it is quirky and it's definitely something recognizable about her. But what makes her stand out is she she isn't necessarily like the traditional. Uh, female, I don't want to say female lead, she's definitely the secondary character, but she is the focal female character. Um, She's just, she's strange, she's weird, she is, like I said, she's quirky, but she makes for a really strong character. Mary Nicolodi, that actress, um, went on to to co-write Suspiria with with Dario. Look at you, just busting out facts left and right. (laughs) So after this whole introductory moment with her character, uh, you do have a moment where Marcus does reunite with Carlo after the events of what have happened. Carlo's hair is seemingly doubled in size at this point. Uh, he is extremely drunk, and they have this really great little conversation in front of the fountain. It's this really nice wide shot that kind of keeps expanding and pulling back as they're moving further apart from each other. Um, and I really like the way the shot is framed as they're yelling back and forth at one, one another about uh, this piece of art that's gone missing. Um, and Carlo is kind of drunkenly trying to explain his reasoning for why he feels that art might not be there anymore. Um, but I really think it's it's such a, a unique uh, usage of the framing here, the distance growing between the two of them. I really like this moment. It stands out to me a lot. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, like I was mentioning before, it's one of these good moments that shows them kind of as a mirror of each other on opposite sides of the frame. Um, the, the scene is also uh, one minute and 50 seconds longer in the original version. Tell me everything. <laughs> Where does it go? <laughs> so it, there's a, it's a, it's about a minute on either side, a minute in the starting and then 50 seconds is taken off the end. Um, in the beginning, uh, there's also a scene before this that was removed where the police um, make Marcus go to the police station to give a report, which he doesn't want to do. Um, but, you know, they say it's standard. He has to. Pretty typical movie scene and for this type of thing. And uh, so he's just telling Marcus that at the starting of the scene, that he's just spent the last four hours at the police station and that he's really um, wiped out. And then uh, invites Carlo back to his place, um, which which Carlo says he doesn't want to do. And then 
at the ending of the scene, uh, Marcus elaborates on what he thinks he saw. Um, the painting, which he describes as having been a collection of faces. And um, Carlo goes on this weird pseudo-philosophical rant about only knowing his own version of the truth and that he may be confusing fact with fiction. A lot of these things you're mentioning, like I really would love to see in in the final form of this film. Um, Because first of all, one thing that does irk me a little bit is, and I, I mean, this is, of course, it's the 1970s, but goddamn, like, some of the police procedural aspects of this film are just sloppy, sloppy, sloppy. Like, people are walking in to, to crime scenes literally 30 minutes after bodies have been removed, and they're just fucking, like, popping in, asking to see shit, investigating uh, on their own free will, and it, nobody seems to question it. And I could have really used a little bit more of, like, of that police presence kind of keeping shit in order. And I was thinking like, God, like why haven't I seen like a proper like sequence of Marcus, you know, at the police station being, being interrogated further or, you know, really delving into that aspect of what's going on because it just seems, it feels very much like an afterthought. You do have this like police officer, this detective character that's introduced here. And then he comes up again towards the finale, but he's like a very much a minor element of what's going on. Um, And it it does feel like one thing that's a little bit half baked with this film is like how they go about handling, um, you know, the events that are transpiring, the murder scenes, the fact that people are just touching things with their bare hands. Uh, People are, cleaning up blood all over sinks and everything just like on the you know immediately following murders like would they really make that old maid later on the movie would they really make that poor old woman clean up the blood from that woman's violent murder like that doesn't seem reasonable to me like aren't there people that come in and handle this shit i don't know maybe not maybe i'm wrong but uh it just seems like it's kind of a sloppy element to the film and i think a little bit more of that would have done it a lot of good but like it's so minor to me it's really not that big of a deal but knowing that exists does make me feel like, hmm, God, I knew I was thinking of something here that I really would have liked to have seen a little bit more of. And knowing that it was filmed and it already existed, I feel a little deprived that it wasn't included in, in the final cut of the film uh, released, you know, in the international cut. Well, I think I think what happened, unfortunately, um, what I've read from multiple sources is that the reason for the cuts is that they mixing comedy and horror wasn't really a a popular thing at the time. So they wanted to cut out scenes that were uh, felt comedic. And unfortunately that lead police role is a comedic role in most of the scenes. So what ended up happening was they're cutting out scenes where that police officer is being funny, but those scenes also served a purpose in the procedural element of the investigation. So that got discarded with the comedy. I, I miss that. I miss having that. Or I, I long to have that. You know, I've, I've never actually experienced it in its full form. But that is something that I, I notably wanted. And I normally am not like, oh, give me more police procedurals. But like with the, the scale of things that are happening in this film, like you would expect the police to be involved. People are being violently murdered in this movie. It just makes sense. So that is something I kind of yearned for. And knowing that exists is satisfying. I got to get my hands on this fucking cut. You got to get me a cut of this movie. <laughs> I'm watching it. I'm excited. It's funny, even um, Argento has commented that this fountain scene specifically, part of the chunk that they removed of of uh, Carlo's like, pseudo-philosophical uh, rant is referenced by Marcus later on, very late in the film. 
And it's funny that they removed this part of it because now they're referencing something that's no longer in the film and it makes no sense when they reference it later. It's very weird that they chose to cut that. Yeah, yeah, it's mind-boggling. But I think a lot of times with these films, when they, you know, when they would translate them and and you know bring them over to the states, I think that they they hit the cutting room floor so hard. Sometimes you lose a lot of really good material, and a lot of these films, like a lot of it, gets gets skimmed for whatever reason. And now, you know, in twenty twenty three, looking back on it, like that should have stayed in there. You know, that absolutely should have remained in there for the sake of the story. I think that was a poor call. But um, who knows? Maybe we'll get a full release here in the States someday. That would be wonderful to have that, you know? Yeah, I'd love to see a theatrical release of the full version. Oh my God, give me, give me, give me, give me. Um, Marcus and uh, Gianna attend the funeral for Helga, a traditional Jewish funeral, by the way, which I I like that little detail. Uh, And she points out that the professor is in attendance and she acknowledges that he had a bit of a relationship with Helga. So, you know, how you have this really beautiful little moment uh, where they're kind of moving through this, this, uh, this cemetery. It's, it's very, very brief, uh, but you're starting to learn that there's kind of like a camaraderie being formed between Marcus and Gianna. And we also learn that the photo that she took of Marcus has made the front page of the newspaper. And he makes a, a passing comment about how, Oh, great. Like, basically, like now the killer is going to know exactly who I am. This is the last thing I fucking want, Uh, which that that does come into play here in a bit. You know, he is recognized uh, for now being involved with this case. Yeah. Yeah. And there's um, there's a scene immediately after this that is removed that is uh, important for the uh, queer angle of the film uh, where they're walking through the, the graveyard together. And um, Gianna mentions that she doesn't have a boyfriend right now. And Marcus says, me neither. And she says, I should hope not. And then in a panic, Marcus says, no, no, I mean a girlfriend. I don't have a girlfriend right now. Oh, my God. Stop it. Are you fucking kidding me? Oh, my God. I want. Oh, Lord. It's so much gayer than I anticipated. Yeah. You know, it all makes sense, though. It fucking makes sense, especially with the way this fucking wraps up, the way this movie ends. Like, of course there were heavier gay tones. It makes sense to me. (laughs) Let's talk about this woman's car real fast. This woman's car. This car is not safe to operate. Like, if you want to talk about humor in a horror movie, I mean, this thing, it feels like she's in, like, I don't know, like, chitty chitty bang bang. Like, (laughs) like, like all the things are moving. Like, the thing, the the chair drops back. Uh, It's like Herbie fully loaded. This car is like a personality all of its own. Um, and it's very, like, this is brief little moment where you just understand that this woman's shit is not fully together, but she's not really phased by it. They do a really good job of establishing her personality right off the bat. Um, she's a mess. She's a little bit of a mess, but she doesn't give really a fuck about it. And I think that's one thing I like about her character. She's not, not out there to really appease or satisfy anyone. She's out there for her herself. She's on her own journey. She's a journalist. She's worried about her stories. Uh, and and she's just kind of her own like quirky little character. I really like uh, this little detail about her. Yeah, and I love the. Um, there's also an interesting bit of of gender play in that scene with the even just the fact that she's driving and then the his seat kind of slumps down, making him appear much shorter than she is. It's almost like a on purpose obvious punchline of of reversing the gender roles, um, which I, I like. Well, when she's in the picture with him, like she definitely naturally just wears the pants and he's so resistant to it, which I think is also like saying something about him and his masculinity and his need to uphold that. Um, And she's like, so like 
unfazed by it. She's just naturally like a dominant personality, uh, which makes for a really fun contrast between the two of them. They do butt heads over it a little bit, um, but it's an it's an interesting character arc for the two of them to get through. I like that little addition of that uh, trait between the two of them. They go back to uh, the uh, initial location uh, where the professor is kind of recounting what happened uh, when Helga had her initial vision on the on the stage when they're giving the presentation. Uh, and they kind of, you know, are discussing um, what took place and how, you know, there was an individual in the crowd that they recall leaving in the midst, midst of the event. Uh, there's some really great fluid camera work moving around the stage during the scene. It's a fairly brief moment, uh, but again, the visual aspects of this film pop. At the ending of this scene, um, there's a an, another very Argento thing where instead of fading to black in post-production, they do an in-camera fade to black where he's just, um, you know, dialing down the, uh, the aperture until it's fully closed. Um, and the main way that you can tell the difference between those is that when you do it that way, it doesn't, um, not everything fades out at the same rate. So when you get to almost black, the highlights that were in the scene are still lingering. Um, it's like a super nerdy thing to notice, but it's it's cool because it means you have to have a lot of confidence in the moment that you decided to fade because you can't change it because you did it in camera, right? I think there's another moment very similar that happens later in the film, again, with the professor when he's trying to call to Marcus. He's trying to make a call yeah. out. And it, it's it's almost a little jarring um, because it's very it's a very noticeable technique, but it's something that catches your eye and, and like in a good way. It's a, very much an artistic choice. Um, but it's something they do a few times over the course of the film. Yeah, in the in the moment that you're talking about, I think he probably, or I mean, obviously this is conjecture, but um, it punctuates between that call and then the beginning of what ends up being his kill, his murder sequence. So I think it's like on purpose drawing your attention. So it's like, oh wait, I need to pay attention now because this is yeah. We're transitioning to a key a key moment here. Pay attention. Yeah, I, I, I pick up on that for sure. Um, I don't understand why why these people are so willing to just share everything with Marcus. Like at the end of the day, again, he's just a musician. He is not a police officer. But everyone's just so willing to like, you know, share uh, their experiences leading up to the murder uh, and inform this man of what exactly happened. And Marcus is just like, you know, he's, he's on the job. He's going full detective with all of this. Uh, but you do kind of have like what is now the key trio of characters because the professor also kind of steps up as being a, a pivotal figure over the course of the film. He does become rather involved uh, with Marcus and helping him kind of solve uh, the mystery behind the murder. And he even goes off and does a little bit of sleuthing on his own that we follow here. Um, so I do like this trio of characters for being the three focal characters that we're following. They make for a rather interesting group of people and they're all very well played. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So Marcus and Gianna share a moment discussing his anxiety and, and his reasoning for being a pianist. And and she starts to kind of discuss that she's, you know, an independent woman. Uh, and that's why she has the job that she has. And that's why she operates the way that she does. And there is this moment here where he has some kind of like, I'm going to say it's some kind of shitty dialogue with her where he really starts to talk down to her uh, about that woman stuff in his words and, and saying it's a fundamental fact that women are different from men and that they're weaker and so forth and so on. Uh, and she kind of puts him in his fucking place. Um, and I really like that about this moment. Um, I 
wish his character wouldn't have strayed into this territory. I get why he does. I think, again, he's very protective of his masculinity. I think you're right. There are these homosexual undertones that are hinted at. Um, and I think that, you know, in this era, he would have probably done anything to try to hide that. So I get why he jumps to the the defense almost. He gets kind of critical of her. But it doesn't necessarily make for the most likable um, aspect of who he is. I'm happy that they don't dwell on this much more than the scene. Yeah. And I like the 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 reversal of gender norms in the arm with the arm wrestling, um, uh, with with her winning twice. <laughs> yeah, well, and I like that she just doesn't stand down. And then when she does win, he's like, "Your arm came off the table." Like he gets all fucking flustered about it. Uh, and then she does that cool little thing with her cigarette, where she like flips it up to her mouth, and I'm like, "Oh my god, you're just like a badass, Gianna!" Yeah. Like, God, she's a badass. I like her a lot. Yeah, apparently that's something that Daria uh, can actually do. Daria Nicolodi. So they 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 put it in the in the movie. I love little little traits like that in characters when they have these little details. It's like an eye patch, you know, the eye patch trait where you give a character a little quirk that makes them pop, and she has a lot of those. There's there's another minute mm-hmm. to this scene that's removed <gasps> Tell me after more. the cigarette flip that again adds to the 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 queerness of it, where she's kind of in interrogating him about it's it's you know he's already said that he's leaving and she can't come with him. Because he has a lead and he's not going to tell her what it is. And so she starts asking, like, why he doesn't like her and doesn't seem to be interested in her. And then makes this, uh, it's obviously meant to be comedic, but makes this uh, uh, comment of, is it, you know, is it my scent? Is it the way I smell? And then he, he, he just kind of leaves annoyed. God, oh my God, all of these little gems that if they would have kept it in the film would have just given it so much more context, I think. Um, but again, like, I mean, I can't, it's 19 fucking 75. I'm, I'm not shocked it was removed, but yeah, just so interesting. I, I God, I'm so happy you know all of these things. It's, this episode's going to be great. <laughs> um, let, let's talk about, let's talk about what's coming up here because I've been waiting for this moment. Carlo's mother, Martha, best character in the movie. Uh, this broad is eccentric. Uh, she's fucking smitten with Marcus. She can't get enough of him. She's played in such a way that she's just just over the top enough uh, that it, it really wets my whistle. I'm just a fan of her. Every scene she's in, uh, she just catches my eye. Where her character goes, did not anticipate it. But God, I mean, I love quirky characters. I think I've expressed that term multiple times over the course of this review. And, and she falls right into that. Like, she is just unique she's weird she's got all these cool little character traits she's a former actress she can't help but talk about it. she's got a wall of a wall of portraits of her face which is something i would do for myself uh just images of her from you know uh films that uh, in her past these all these different images of her when she was a youth um kind of mourning her lost uh celebrity status she was a successful actress who basically had to sell it all sell it all to get married and, and be with a husband and raise a child. And, and she definitely has an element of regret to that that's hinted at, but um, such a unique character. You don't get a ton of her, but when she is on camera, she's just electric. Yeah. I think that that's also speaking of breadcrumbs. It's one of the first breadcrumbs that's tossed at you is the mentioning of how, as she puts it, her husband made her uh, end her career. Um, and I, I do love that. You know, they obviously had to keep all these scenes with her, which even which meant that they couldn't get rid of the comedic element because I love the engineer gag that 
that gets repeated in the movie where she keeps thinking that he's an engineer for some reason. Oh, the engineer? Like when, when yeah. he calls her and she's like, oh, the engineer. Oh, she's so excited about it. Yeah. She's such a, she's like a tart. She's very ditzy, um, which does make for like a later reveal that happens to be the last thing one would anticipate because she's just so um, kind of all over the place. It, it's really the last thing you would expect from that character, what ends up happening. It's well played, very well played what they do with her character. That actress, uh, Clara Calamai, she was actually quite a famous actress in Italy, and she was retired at the time, came out of retirement to do this this one role, and then went back into retirement. Yeah, I actually, I, I was intrigued when I was watching it this time around with the moment with all the, the photos from her history. I was like, God, that obviously is the same woman. This has to be stemming from something. And so I did a, a bit of a deep dive, and yeah, I, I stumbled on that as well. Um, which is just some some cool history behind the film to know that's all really kind of um, uh, her true, you know, the, the actress's actual true background uh, as well, kind of coming through in the final product. I like that, uh, that little detail there. Uh, after this, you have this this moment where you meet this very statuesque character of, of Massimo, of Ricci, in one scene, and immediately you know that this character is different, you know, and it's it's pretty much depicted that this character is... Um, I mean, I'm assuming presented as trans. They're, they're wearing a brassiere. They have their hair up in a very effeminate way. Uh, they're wearing like kind of a kimono-esque robe. Um, they're very soft, very gentle, but they also have a very prominent mustache. So it's like, it's a lot of things going on. Um, but this character, one thing I like about this character, they're only in this one sequence, but for the one scene they're in, they're portrayed as extremely warm, thoughtful, well-intentioned caring of Carlo as we come to find. Um, and, and there's really no negative connotation to this character at all. Um, even though there's a bit of an awkward moment between them and, and, and uh, Marcus, as we see here, I think that's just more of the era in general, you know, the interaction between the two of them and the kind of discomfort that comes from him. But the way the character's written, I think is rather flattering. You know, I think they're portrayed to be a very, very warm character in the brief time they're on camera. Yeah, so this is um, it's intended to be to be a a, a male character, um, Massimo Ricci, but it's actually a, a a female actor, Geraldine Hooper, is is playing the role and then dubbed with a man's voice. So woman on screen dubbed with man's voice. That makes a lot of sense because there is such a soft femininity to the character. But when you hear them talk, you're kind of like, whoa, <laughs> like that hit differently than I anticipated. But hey, you know what? I'll take it. I think regardless, uh, you know, whatever, whoever played the role, however they translated it to camera at the end of the day, the way they come across is, I think, flattering to what is supposed to be a queer individual. And I'll take it for what it is, especially from 1975. And they also share at the ending of the scene, um, Mark, Marcus and, and Massimo share a, a little micro tender moment where he, even though he had seemed reluctant to enter the apartment at the beginning and kind of taken aback by Massimo answering the door, at the ending, he very warmly says uh, goodbye and, and Massimo blows him a kiss. Yeah, I love that little detail, that tiny little moment. Uh, again, it's this little warm moment between the two of them. You do have, though, this dialogue here where you do have Carlo basically say straight up, I mean, he says the line, he says, I'm a faggot. I mean, he uses the term faggot. And, you know, uh, 
it's it's one of those things that you've got to step back a little bit. You've got to keep in mind in the era, it was just a different time. Dialogue like this was just so much more common and, and widely used, and it didn't have the kind of taboo element it does now. It's jarring to hear it, but when you think about where the character's coming from, I find it palatable. Like, I get, I get the struggle he's dealing with. Um, I think there's a lot of self-loathing he's experiencing, and um, it's the only time that term is used in this film, a film with a very heavy undercurrent of homosexuality, you know, running throughout it. Um, I think it's intentionally played, you know? I, I, I don't mind the usage of that term here. I know there's a lot of people who bring it up and they get angry about it, and they, they, they get mad because someone said faggot, just like Kelly Rowland saying faggot in, in, in Freddy versus Jason. People get pissed off. But you know what? Like, I don't know, man. I can I can step back and think, hey, for the greater context of the film and the story they're trying to tell in this specific case, I think it benefits having him say that. The journey his character's going on, what he's experiencing here, what he's probably feeling, knowing that this has been discovered about him, something he's obviously trying to hide about himself. I don't know. I, I think it adds a lot of depth and nuance to the character. Yeah, and I think also in the context of the full line, you know, he says, I'm not only a drunk, but a faggot as well. I think it's more a reflection of how he feels society probably views him. So it's it's almost that he's putting it, the word faggot in you know, in the, in the mouth of, of people who would judge him, not, it's not a term he's using to refer to himself. I agree with that completely. I think he's saying that because that's exactly how people see him as a faggot. He's a loser. He's a drunk. He's a faggot. It's, it's sad. It's a sad moment for the character. So following this, this tender moment uh, with a character that we never, unfortunately never get to uh, revisit again, we have this conversation between Carlo and Marcus, where basically Carlo suggests Marcus stop fascinating over the crime. He thinks he's in too deep. He says that the memory of the painting is a challenge that he's trying to overcome, Marcus says to Carlo. Um, and he's really, it, it becomes clear that that Marcus is now just kind of immersed in what happened. And his, his sole purpose right now is getting to the bottom of this crime on his own free will, with or without the assistance of the police or anybody else. So, you know, Marcus at this point, his driving force to the rest of the movie is figuring out the identity of who killed Helga. There's more um, physicality between the two of them in this scene, too, with, uh, you know, Carlo touches Marcus quite a bit. And when they're standing against the wall, um, Marcus puts his cigarette in his mouth backwards and Carlo takes it out of his, his mouth and turns it around for him and puts it in uh, the right way. I need you to make like a fucking like a, a full list of every homoerotic interaction these characters have with a timestamp for me i'm gonna i'm gonna release it to the to our fans we're gonna be like here's every goddamn gay moment in this film let's identify them how gay are these characters like on a scale of one to ten are they are they closeted are they bisexual are we just talking full-out homosexual men because at this point with all the little details you're throwing at me i think these two men are like lovers uh i think they know it i think they're aware of it and i think that they're just not really sharing it with the public but you know these two fuckers have slept with each other at some point like you can't convince me that these two have not railed each other at least three or four or five times at this point yeah especially with the the moment i was mentioning earlier at the fountain that gets removed where he, he invites marcus invites him back to his place and he says not he essentially says not tonight i want to go home i do think that they do probably have a sexual relationship but i think that i think that marcus is probably not strictly homosexual because there's also a scene of him uh kissing 
um, Gianna that's removed from from the international version. Yeah, I definitely think that he has some bisexual tendencies, and he's definitely attracted to Carlo. I, I think that he's significantly more in denial than Carlo is, because clearly Carlo is acting upon it with others. But I do think there's this electricity between the two of them. Another thing that I think codes Marcus as, as closeted or, or queer pretty strongly is that, again, thinking of the time, 1975, if you have a scene where a main, an ostensibly heterosexual main character best friend reveals that they're gay, there would be a reaction from the, the protagonist. But he he doesn't react as though he already knows this. You know, well, And I appreciate, regardless of, of his backstory, I do appreciate Marcus's reaction in that scene. You know, there is not really a moment of any form of judgment. Uh, there's not a moment of uh, dialogue that comes up where he shames Carlo in any way, shape, or form. They just kind of move on from it. So regardless of what his story is, he handles that moment very well, and it makes his character all the more likable because of it. Um, I also fucking love the shot through the window of that broad uh, smoking in front of the TV broadcast talking about that the murder. It's such a cool little detail, and it lingers on it for a bit. She's just puffing away. Cool little shot. But there's tons of moments like that through the course of this film. There's a scene... Uh, immediately after the news broadcast that is Marcus and Carlo playing a duet together on piano inside Blue Bar. Oh God, you don't get much gayer than that. God damn it. <laughs> they, they, you know they watch this movie, they're like, it's too fucking gay for 1975. We got to cut the, the piano duet. I mean, <laughs> that alone is going to send severe gay vibes to anybody who watches it. I don't know any straight men that play duets together on a piano. <laughs> True. Uh, so then you come to this moment where you've got Marcus now at home completing a song alone on the piano. Really love this sequence that follows. Um, you've got somebody stalking around on the rooftop above him. You start to see some some of the, the ceiling crumble a little bit because somebody's walking around in the glass panels uh, directly above his piano. And he starts to become very aware of the fact that there is somebody who is getting into his apartment. And you do start to see Marcus as, for just how, for just how smart he really is, um, because he makes some really good choices in the scene. As he starts to acknowledge that there is a there is a presence in his home, he continues to feign playing the piano. Well, not feign. I mean, he's doing it one handed, uh, acting as though he's distracted, while he arms himself with like um with a little statue. Uh, on the shelf behind him. So he's pretty much ready to defend himself. But this whole little moment, the way it's filmed, you've got some really nice zoom sequences here, pushing in on him, building that suspense. You've got some great shadow play as the silhouettes approaching him through the doorway. This moment really kind of builds that element of dread, um, which I, I love moments like this from Argento. He does such a good job with creating the, the, the sensation that somebody is watching, that there is another presence in the room leading up to these moments. And, and this is truly just, I think, a standout moment of suspense in this movie. Yeah, definitely. I love the, the opening shot of the scene with the, the camera blows through the curtains as the curtains are blowing in the wind and uh, all the snorkel coverage of you know, having the snorkel glide across the page as he's writing the notes, showing the interior of the piano with the hammers hitting hitting strings and the sweat dribbling down his brow in like extreme close up. All that stuff is is great. The pacing's super, 
super good. That children uh, chanting track comes into play again. I don't know where the fuck uh, the killer got this specific track on cassette of these children just singing like la 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 it's very present over the course of the whole film but it is it does become kind of like um a signal obviously that that the um the killer is now in the house and so he hears the song he is getting ready to defend himself and the phone goes off and so he makes the smart decision to make a mad dash to the phone grab the door and bolt it and there's a really unique ch- choice here where they allow the killer to actually have like a, a bit of dialogue. Like obviously they're disguising their voice, but they do mutter a line through the door as Marcus is on the phone with, with Gianna um, informing her there's somebody in my house. The killer straight up just threatens him uh, and, and tells him that he, they are going to kill him. Um, and it is very eerie. It's a creepy fucking sequence. The voice is a very creepy. Um, it doesn't totally make sense when you find out who the killer actually is, <laughs> but I'll, I'll roll with it because it just makes for a really ominous moment. Yeah. I love the, uh, says that they're going to kill him and then set eventually. <laughs> and then they leave and he sees the figure walking away from his apartment. Some of these, these long moving shots though, as the figure in the raincoat enters the house and everything, I mean, the cinematography in this is just so well done consistently throughout the whole film. But some of my favorite shots are in this specific sequence because it's a drawn out moment. I like slow burn suspense. It's one of my favorite things. If I have a moment that takes its time, I appreciate it all the more. And this is definitely one of those moments. Um, And again, you just get to see how smart Marcus actually is capable of being, which makes him a character that you want to root for. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Playing the cassette of the children for the professor. Uh, he begins to suggest that the killer is actually a paranoid schizophrenic who is recreating past memories. And and then his associate suggests that the song itself might actually in a way be tied to like a classic folklore tale called The House of the Screaming Child, where the song basically represents something tragic that happened within the home. This is one little plot twist that's a little bit of a stretch for me. Maybe you can elaborate a bit more on this, how they get to this whole revelation of this folklore, because it does seem like a bit of a reach to get us to this location. Was there anything else in the original cut of the film that kind of brought them to the conclusion of this folklore and tying it into this house? Not enough. There is 12 seconds removed from this scene with a little bit more of an explanation, but it's still a stretch. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess he just really wanted that to be the plot point, but getting there from where we already are is just too much of a, a journey to cover in a single scene. Yeah, he just, you know, he just says that it's uh, the the song is is repeating a specific moment from the killer's past that, um, you know, was traumatic and is motivating the murder. And then the other guy, Bertie, is saying that he adds the information that that it's at least uh it's not just some random piece of folklore that it's a it's a local tale about um a house that is in the area so um it it makes it a little bit more believable that he would have actually thought of that but the idea that listening to that song made him think of this specific story is still uh, a bit ridiculous I'd say it's the biggest reach in the film for me overall. Cause like I said, at the beginning of the review, like for the most part, this storyline here is rather coherent. 
Um, and I appreciate that about the film. But for this moment specifically, it really does feel like they just needed to get Marcus to the location. And so they're like, oh, here, here's a plot point. We're just going to disclose it in this basic conversation. And now he knows and we can move forward. Yeah, it's a little far-fetched for me. Like, I'll roll with it. It's not that big of a gripe. But it definitely is, like, the furthest reach overall of the course of the movie of how he gets to what is this very key location, this massive, beautiful house that becomes a a very uh, pivotal part of the rest of the story. Yeah. It's also, it just seems funny. I guess it's a real thing, but it's just funny where he's, you know, he wants to read the book and Bertie's like, oh yeah, just go to the, he calls it the local folklore library. Yeah. What the fuck is that? Does they, do these exist just like ra- at <laughs> random? Like, is there a local folklore library like here in New Jersey where I reside or maybe in Toronto? <laughs> do you have a local folklore library of Toronto? Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> oh, I can only imagine the, the Canadian folklore that we could stumble upon. Um, but yeah, and it's, it's a very beautiful library, but like, and we get this cool little moment there where he goes and he finds the book. He finds the image of the house in the book he tears the page from the book and that's like that's what gets him to figure out where he needs to go it's as simple as that yeah yeah and this is i think one of the first times before jumping into fully supernatural films like like Suspiria and inferno this is the first time that he um argento's playing with some things that later become tropes of his like um when you see what is likely the the killer's pov looking through that frame within a frame uh when he's reading the book and has is about to tear the page out where it's you know he's clear that he's being watched um he has the sound of uh wind and moaning kind of rising up slowly in the soundtrack which is obviously not motivated by anything on the screen and that's something that he uses a ton in the in the three mothers trilogy so it's it's interesting to see it happening in this in this film uh first I have that same note. It's a subtle little moment. It's this kind of like distant shot of him, like basically take, ripping the page out and, and wrapping up there in the library. It does very much give the, the, the sensation of that he is being watched. And it is this very like ominous, uh, creepy undertone, that swelling audio. You're right of that wind that, that doesn't seem to be stemming from anything, but it does establish this great vibe in this moment, this really uh, unsettling presence moving forward. There is this this brief moment here coming up, again, like subtle humor uh, sprinkled throughout the movie, this co- this phone conversation between him and Gianna, where he's like in a coffee shop and the guy keeps making like espresso beside him. And then like, let's talk about this fucking hellhole that Gianna works in. Like, it looks like a fucking like um, sweatshop. Like, I mean, she's a journalist, but like, what is this fucking place? It looks miserable. Uh, and they have this conversation where neither of them can really hear each other, but it's this funny little kind of kind of comedic moment um, that I really don't mind having a little comedy in this film because I feel her character kind of leans into that a little bit. So I think it's kind of like welcome for her character. Yeah, I think the only reason that that scene didn't get cut um, because it's comedic, it's, I mean, it's, it's one of the most, even with the stuff that did get removed from the movie, it's it's one of the most comedic scenes that the steamer continually hitting him. And he's very rightfully asking the guy why they put the steamer right next to the phone. Um, but uh, I think the only reason it stayed in is because the point of the scene is that he mentions the author of the book uh, is Amanda Rigetti. And in the library scene, you see that name written on the book, but you never hear it said. So I think they probably thought this 
they needed to keep this scene to make it clear that that's the name of the person because obviously the next scene uh, is her. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, let's take a moment to talk about the character of Amanda because she's really only introduced for the scene that's coming up here. Uh, and she's quickly dispatched. You know, she is the next victim and you barely get to know her. But she gets a great fucking scene. You know, you got another sequence here with more toys, more leather gloves, more of that, you know, kind of um, uh, foreboding. You know something's going to come from this because, again, you're seeing this sequence associating all of these toys with that leather, that gloved hand. And then it cuts to her at her beautiful chateau with her sensible maid who she's making small talk with. I love that broad. I'm happy she comes back to clean up the blood of the now dead Amanda a little bit later in the movie. Uh, But right now they're having this cute little moment together. And you you get to know Amanda very briefly before ominous shit starts happening to her. Yeah, it's uh, I like they have the little random conversation about her minor birds, and and she uh, elaborates to to the old woman about all of the different sounds that the birds are capable of of mimicking. It's uh, a seemingly unnecessary, but it kind of at least it's like you at least get a moment for her to be a character before she dies. Yeah. And again, she has such a great sequence here and they do involve the birds and you do hear the like the screams of the birds. So it does make for uh, a a bit of connectivity with what's about to happen, because as soon as this old broad leaves, she walks inside the house. She finds a goddamn baby doll hanging from a noose in her house. That's ominous. Uh, She goes outside and realizes the woman's caught the bus. So she's now there alone. She finds a door ajar, and really quickly, it's, it's implied that somebody is in her house. Before she even has an idea of what the fuck's going on, she's kind of thrown into the situation. Yeah, and it's a very bizarre scene. It's almost, I mean, it, it feels supernatural the way that the birds randomly attack her. Yeah, but I mean, like, what a cool fucking moment like honestly the birds attacking her uh, i don't know where the fuck it comes from she does knock their cage over as she's going to run so maybe they're just pissed off but like the whole moment where she like holds up like what she's holding like scissors or something no she's holding like a needle right knitting needle yeah Yeah, that's what it is and the bird like flies right into it and the way they execute this whole sequence is, is stunning i mean it's really a beautiful sequence but yeah it does have almost a pinch of a supernatural vibe to it especially when she moves past that closet and you see that goddamn fucking eyeball with that black eyeliner around it just glaring at her that is a shot that sends chills down my spine i mean talk about a horrifying visual that lone eyeball just staring at her from the shadows it's one of the best shots in the movie so you have this whole sequence come up you like we mentioned we she kills the bird uh it's all very foreboding um and then uh eventually she's she's approached from behind and she's beaten the back of the head with a flashlight. And so she drops to the floor. She's immediately incapable of defending herself. I mean, she's just out of it. Uh, She's crawling and the figure starts moving in behind her for what is leading up to be a great kill scene, though rather drawn out. I need to find a tub that produces water that hot because I love a hot bath. I mean, I love it. I need a tub that can could boil a chicken and this tub i mean the heat that this water must be in order to do what it does to this poor woman's face is it's scalding i'm shocked that the uh the pipes in this area can produce water so hot but it's very impressive and so you know you've got this whole buildup of her knocked out on the ground this is the moment where she starts drooling on the on the ground which i find very uncomfortable whenever anyone's drooling i think it's very uh 
uh, just makes it queasy. It makes me kind of sick to my stomach because it's something that you don't see a lot of in horror. So when people like vomit on themselves, spit up on themselves, I always think it's just very gross. And then she gets picked up and she gets lowered into this bathtub by the killer. And she's basically just like boiled. I mean, it's it's a very drawn out sequence, but there's a big payoff, I feel. Especially when he drops her body on the ground and you see these final moments of her before she dies. And her face is just like beet red and covered in blisters. And the makeup here is just phenomenal. Um, it's such a just uncomfortable death scene because you know she's alive through the whole thing you know that is just a, such a painful sequence for her um and and you see this moment of her laying on the floor and in the tile with the steam she starts to write on the wall something that does come into play here a little bit later yeah um i believe this scene is a, a direct reference to an almost identical murder scene in one of the first giallo films blood and black lace uh, where one of the models is is drowned in a similar manner. And then, interestingly, in this room, there are two uh, mannequin heads on the ledge above the bathtub that have kind of like a velveteen exterior to them, which is what the mannequins in Blood and Black Lace look like. So I think that might be him, uh, Argento, nodding to the fact that he borrowed that scene. And then the way that it's portrayed in this film is then directly emulated for one of the kills in uh, Halloween 2. Look at you. Look at you coming out with all this fucking information. Are you talking about the um, the scene where the two individuals are killed after having sex in that, in that like, uh, soak tub where they, like, they bathe, like, the elderly in that tub in that sequence where the two characters are killed in Halloween 2? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. I love that scene. I fucking, I love Halloween 2, I'll be honest. It's probably my favorite in the franchise but yeah no i see that for sure and i do have to say that actually blood and black lace is one of the big inspirations for a lot of the elements of meat because there's a lot of sequences that take place within like a boutique opening and lots of mannequin play so we have watched that movie multiple times uh for that influence so yeah i definitely see that here for sure that movie is the movie that created what we now call bisexual lighting. And that's why I like to hear. I love bisexual lighting. I love bisexuals in general. My partner's bisexual. I celebrate that about him. So yes, we love bisexual lighting. <laughs> so yeah, with her dying breath, you've got uh, Amanda writing something on the tile that comes into play here in a little bit. And Marcus does come to the house. He finds Amanda dead. Curiously enough, he does not report it to the police. Like, that is a problem. I really think Marcus should have made a better call with that, but I get it. Okay, maybe he doesn't want to be associated. Still seems kind of shitty of him. There's a there's a deleted scene that explains that. What, what, what happens? So immediately after that scene, uh, he has a scene with Gianna in her car where he's concerned that, he, that he'll be the, the prime suspect if he goes to the police. So instead, she recommends that he leave town. And bizarrely, out of all the places she could recommend for him to go, she recommends that he goes to Lebanon. Um, and uh, they have a reversal in this scene of his previous comment in the arm wrestling scene where he says that men are stronger. In this scene, the one that's removed, he tells her that uh, men... Um, that he's going to make the better decision because uh, women win in brute strength, but men have a monopoly on intelligence. <laughs> god damn it. I got to get my hands on this fucking cut. Oh my God. Every scene you mention is so enticing to me. <laughs> I know. 
uh, it's just mind boggling that they would want to shed some of this. Like, I, again, I get it. 1975, I can't hold it against them. But like, you haven't said a single thing to me that I'm like, oh, that sounds disposable. Or that sounds like something that we could have gone without. Like, it all feels like, like the puzzle pieces I feel that are missing, the few pieces that are missing here would have been uh, fully like completed for me, you know, if, if these little pieces would have been left in the puzzle. So I, I do wish that they would have included a lot of this. But whatever, I digress. So now, desperate for answers, Marcus is going to a series of area greenhouses in an attempt to identify some of the unique plants that are in the photo of the house. Uh, he's basically trying to find like where they would have procured these plants, uh, these very specific plants, uh, so he can identify where this house is located. Yeah, which ends up being kind of weird because when he finds it, it seems like he just drove around and found it. <laughs> Yeah, this never comes back into play again. Nothing to do with the plants. He doesn't refer to the plants. He doesn't acknowledge the plants. Uh, okay, I mean, I guess if you're trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together, I guess that's a smart move for him to like be like, okay, I'm at least going to go off of this. I have nothing else to go off of. But yeah, he drives around uh, and finds the location here eventually. He does have a moment where he's talking with the professor um, where, again, he makes it very clear that he did not report the murder. So, like, what the fuck, Marcus? Are you serious? You just left this woman's body dead in the house? Uh, but it does eventually leave uh, room for the professor to go back to this location because he gets to have a little moment here shortly, which I appreciate for that character because he's been kind of MIA for a little bit here. So finally identifying the house in the photo, uh, he does find it to be for sale. So he goes and meets with the property manager. And, and as he's talking with him, uh, he's spied upon by this mysterious strawberry blonde child who ends up being named Olga, which was confusing for me because there is a Helga and an Olga. You have two names that are very similar, but okay. And I did not look into this, but is is this girl, is she also in the Beyond? Um, I don't recall if she's in the Beyond, but she's like a famous creepy redhead. She was in, um, she's in um, Who Saw Her Die. She's the girl who they see die. And she's also in uh, Demons, the first, the first one. She's like the the ticket taker. Oh my god, that's what she was. Oh my god, the fucking redhead in that green dress. That's what I know her from. You know who I thought she was? I thought she was that goddamn braided child in the Beyond, the one that watches her mother's face melt. And I was like, I know this face. I know this face. Why do I know this face? That's what it is. She's in Demons. Demons is one of my favorites, so that makes sense why I would recognize her. Okay, I'm well. I'm pleased. I at least I I knew I knew her from something, and she's very creepy in this film. She puts a needle through a lizard at one point. That's weird. Yeah, and she like licks her lip and smiles after her dad slaps her in the face. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck was that nonsense? And it doesn't even really go anywhere. It's like it's not like she's revealed to be the killer or something. This girl's just problematic, and she's fantasizing about her father beating her. So that's a totally different storyline, but okay. Uh, and then, so she's the one that accompanies Marcus to the house, uh, which I think is rather pointless because then he just leaves her at the gate and he's like, okay, go home. And so he goes into this house by himself, um, which is, you know, it's kind of the key moment for him to start realizing exactly the root of what is happening here. 
but meanwhile, we do kind of transition over to the professor for a little bit. He does go back to the house where Amanda passed away. We get more of that wonderful maid uh, who is just full of sassafras and vinegar. I love her so much. Uh, she's my kind of gal, and she's spilling all the beans to him about everything that just transpired. This is the moment where she says to him, she's like, oh, they just took the body away like 30 minutes ago. I still haven't cleaned up the blood. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Isn't there a professional team that you would send in to help this poor woman? It's just very confusing to me that this woman is stuck cleaning up the blood of this dead woman. Yeah. Yeah, it is bizarre, but a uh, good thing that she did because that's how he figures out uh, that something was written on the glass, the glass tile. Yeah, and it, it doesn't even necessarily lead anywhere because all it says in the tile as he turns on the tub and the seam starts swelling up and everything and, and you start to see, uh, you know, what she marked on the tile, it comes up in the uh, in the reflection, you start to see it says, it was. Isn't that what it says? Yeah. It was. Period, period, period. <laughs> I'm not sure if they were trying to to ins- insinuate that maybe below that it says a name that he saw. Um, it's it's clear that the killer thinks he gets enough information in this scene to make it worth killing him. Because when he goes back out to talk to the the elderly maid again, you get the killer's POV shot somewhere else in the house watching them um, as he has this whatever eureka moment and leaves tell me this in in the cut that you saw do they kill that maid (laughs) does she die because this scene ends on a note where like she turns it looks like she sees somebody at the end of the hallway because you know the whole sequence there is filmed like from a distance so she turns and she starts to walk in the direction of like of, of the camera of the pov of the killer and i was like my god you know if they kill this old woman, I'm going to be pissed off. This poor broad hasn't been doing anything to anybody but cleaning up blood. Like, don't kill her. Oh, my God. That's so unfair to this woman. Um, but it seems like it should have happened with the way it's set up there. And it doesn't go anywhere. It's very bizarre. It's not even just the way that it's set up. But if you're following the cause and effect of the killer killing people who now are finding out information... She has the same information that Giordani does, and the killer kills Giordani, but not the old woman. It's very weird. I bet you anything that old woman was killed. We don't even know it. And she's just, her body is there to this day, just fucking rotting away. Uh, Because that was a kill scene that was waiting to happen. If I could have seen that old woman die, I would have felt bad, but it would also be very entertaining for me. So I do feel a little deprived. So yeah, so now we have the moment where, where Marcus leaves Olga and goes to explore this house. And this house is just... It's fucking wild. I mean, the architecture of this house is is truly stunning. The windows in this house, it looks like something out of Return to Oz. Remember the movie Return to Oz? Oh, my God. Let's talk about this house for a second. Yeah. I, it's, I, he, Argento obviously loved the house as much as we did because it's an exceptionally long sequence of just goblin score playing as he walks around the house. It sounds almost like like a guitar riff from like Jesus Christ Superstar. It's like don't 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 It's funky, yeah. And then all of a sudden, I love the moment though where he steps on the glass and it breaks yeah, the, yeah. the rift and it goes like silent for a moment. I love moments like that. Um, I really like drawn out sequences of people like exploring locations. Uh, Troy gets mad at me because I'm always like, oh, I I like like the, the slow burn moments. He's like, they're boring. I'm like, no, they're sitting the mood. And I think that while this is very drawn out, it very much sets the mood of what is going to be the key final location of the film. This house is very important to the overall final 
you know, as we're entering what is going to be the finale of the movie here, this house is so key. And my God, I mean, they couldn't have found a better location if they tried. This place is amazing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So he's going room to room. We're treated to a, an array of moody shots and zooms. And, and uh, you know, he gets to this one room where he finds under like a layer of paint and drywall, he sees that there's there's something that's been covered up. There's like a hint of color coming through the wall. So he's drawn to it and he starts like chipping away at it with his nails. And I'm really weird about like weird textures. Like I hate getting things in my nails. So this like makes my butt cheeks like just like fucking like go tight watching him dig away at this wall. And then he's like taking a piece of glass and just chipping away at it. And you do realize like there is a very elaborate illustration of what appears to be a, of a child stabbing an adult like very graphically painted on this wall. And it's, I mean, I can't think of a more ominous and obvious illustration if I tried. It's very much saying like, here's what fucking happened in the, in the, the beginning of the movie. It's given him all of the details he needs to figure out what else is happening. It's very on the nose, but it looks really creepy. And as for he leaves the room, I do like, like that you see a piece of the wall fall off and reveal that there is another figure in the drawing that he didn't catch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it turns out that it's actually the kid is holding a knife and there's a stabbed man, but who's the other person? And it it calls into question who did the stabbing, which is interesting. It is a little bit far-fetched that he didn't continue scraping and uncover the rest of that himself, but... uh... Oh, I would have, like, literally removed the entire layer of paint from the whole wall because I would... I would want to see what else was under there. I mean, there could be a full mural on that wall that I'm yeah. not seeing. This could just be a, a small portion of it. But okay, I'll roll with it. This image becomes very important, this very specific image. You see it multiple times through the rest of the film. So as as he's outside and he's walking along the outside of the building, there is this moment where this pane of glass falls on his head. This is my greatest fear, uh, that this is how I'm going to die. I'm going to just be walking and a piece of sheet glass just falls on me and kills me. He should have died in this moment. Like, I'm going to be honest, like, this should have taken him out, but it just causes a minor cut. But it scares the shit out of me just thinking of that happening. So at this point, he takes out his flashlight and he, you know he turns it on. You get these really beautiful shots, a couple of really great shots of the glint of the light. Um, I love moments like this. And and eventually, um, it is revealed that uh, that the property owner and his daughter do come back, and they they basically ask him why he's still there so late. They acknowledge his wounds, uh, ask what happened, and so they finally get him to leave the property at this point. Um, and you do have this moment of of him driving home. It's this curious little moment where he passes this overturned truck. It's not really t- tied into anything exactly, uh, but it's just this kind of like ominous visual of something obviously that happened. Uh, and while he's driving, it kind of intercuts back and forth between him and the professor who is currently trying to reach him on the telephone um, and obviously unsuccessful because at this point, Marcus is still on the road. And this cuts into a a, a key moment with the professor, which is... Also, probably one of the most memorable scenes from the movie um, for an array of reasons. Uh, But what happens here, I mean, I don't know exactly what happens here, to be honest. I don't know where this thing comes from. I don't know who made it. I don't know who got their hands on it. It's terrifying. Uh, Maybe you can give me a little more backstory on what this thing is. So this was just an idea, the doll, you mean. It was just an idea that Argento had and everybody involved with the movie tried to convince him not to put it in the movie where the scene would have just been, 
you know, he's he's looking around the office. He thinks somebody's in there, chuckles about it, finishes his tea, and then the killer comes out from behind the curtains. But Argento really badly wanted to do this doll thing. And funnily enough, it you know, it's like the most iconic moment in the whole movie ever. Like, that that doll is on most like reference. If you, there's an article about the movie, there's a picture of the doll in the movie. You know, I mean, it's fucking horrifying. I don't I don't know what the fuck is happening, but the music kicks into high gear. The closet blows open, and this fucking doll with this evil, horrifying face just comes marching at the professor. I mean, speeding at him. I don't know how it's being operated. You know, he 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 grabs like a one of his like daggers from his shelf you know he's got all these different historical pieces he grabs this dagger and he he slashes at the doll cuts a chunk of its head off and you see there's all you see all these like gears and pieces inside of it so i'm like okay i guess this is like maybe like a very elaborate uh piece of machinery but still like i i don't know who what sick-minded person would sit down and create this thing i mean (laughs) it's truly a, a piece of nightmare fuel like it is horrifying and i get why Argento wanted to use the visual. I don't necessarily feel it's it's in the right element in this film. <laughs> like it, it doesn't feel like it makes sense here, but it doesn't mean I don't want it to be part of the scene. You know, like it's a great fucking moment. I wish there was some form of explanation or something that tied it into the overall closure of the film, but it's never revisited again. You never see this dial again. It's just this one fucking weird moment. And I just, I wish I knew who constructed it. Did the killer make it? I mean, if when we find out who the killer is, if she fucking pulled that off, hats off. Fedora tipped to her because this thing is fucking terrifying. But then immediately after the doll is destroyed, uh, the professor is, is immediately attacked by the killer. Uh, he is grabbed by the back of the head. He is basically like the equivalent of curb stomped against the fireplace a multitude of times. Uh, it's it's pretty fucking gnarly. And then you get that great shot of like the of the blade being picked up and the camera follows it as it goes up and then it comes down into the back of his neck. And it's just another fantastic kill. Yeah, I love that's my favorite kill in the movie, um, just because there's so much build up to it. And there's they throw you off with, you know, he goes down the hallway to get the tea. And then later when he leaves, they cut to the empty tea room again, as though you're waiting for somebody to be in there. And then they cut to the window that he walks by as though you're waiting for someone to be there. And it's like they're purposely setting you up for all these things to build how much of a you never would have guessed this is what's going to happen happens with the doll. Apparently that doll was a direct inspiration to James Wan for the the doll and the Saw movies. I mean, I am not shocked at all. In fact, uh, that was something that when I watched it this last time around, I was like, even down to like the suit and everything, like there's no way yeah. there wasn't a level of inspiration. Even that like kind of like maniacal laugh it has and everything. Uh, yeah. This is significantly scarier to me than any of the Saw dolls. I'll say that right now. This fucking thing is terrifying. Definitely, yeah. Moving on, you know, next sequence where we got Martha. She's back. Thank God. Oh, the engineer. Like she's she's so happy to hear uh, from Marcus. And they have this brief uh, phone conversation. He's trying to get in touch with Carlo again. And and so as he attempts to uh, call Carlo, he notices that the window in the photo of the house is is now covered. When he visited the house, he realized that there is a window in the photo that is now covered with a wall. And so he's like, oh, fuck, shit. Like, how did I not pick up on this? So he leaves a letter uh, for Gianni 
stating that he's going back to the house and he's going to go do some more sleuthing. So this is really coming up on like, what is the final act of the film? I consider like he goes back to the house and you have this really great kind of moody buildup of him breaking in. I'm very scared of heights. He's scaling the sides of the building. He's breaking through the wall with his flashlight. And he starts to realize that there is in fact a window that is hidden behind this wall. Yeah, there's there's a scene before this, um, which is the one I mentioned where uh, he and Gianna actually kiss. Um, and now he's, he's going to take her advice to leave town, doesn't want to go to Lebanon because he's afraid of flying. So they decide they're going to drive to Spain together. And um, she's apparently going to go to get her luggage and we'll be back in an hour, which makes it make more sense that he leaves that note for her. Um, and then there's this weird moment where she finds a picture of um, a model that he had taken a photo of before, and she makes fun of him for being into what she calls, quote, vampy women. And then there's this comedic music track that plays as she like actually does a dance leaving the apartment. God damn it. I got I got to see this fucking scene. I got to see all of these scenes. Every single one of them is so tantalizing to me. Ugh. I, I, I don't know. I could do with a little bit of humor, especially like in this era. I feel like some of these movies can get so dry. Um, it can almost like take away from the experience and like the little bit of humor that still exists in this movie. I don't think hurts it at all. And like, like that moment we talked about earlier with them in the, you know, on the phone back and forth between the coffee shop. Like I actually thought that was a great little character moment for him and it made him all the more likable. So the fucker is boldly scaling the side of this goddamn house. Uh, he straight up just starts destroying the wall, and then he scales back down. He gets into the house, and he has identified the area of the wall that would have led to this hidden room. So he starts just fucking plowing through the wall until he eventually gets into the room and reveals that there is this whole area that's been cut off. And in the middle of this room, there is what is a terrifying mummified corpse that's just sitting in this chair and it, i gotta say this is one of the best mummified bodies i've ever seen on film like this thing is so fucking well executed i, I mean is this a real real corpse like did they just go and like procure a real mummified body because it's so realistic to me yeah they could probably get away with it yeah, I mean, I would believe it with this film, to be honest. So as he's acknowledging this body and he's panicking, uh, Marcus is knocked out by an unseen figure. And when he wakes up, he's outside of the house and he is bathed in the glow of what is fire. The house is now burning. And he looks over and Gianna is is kneeling beside him. And, and she informs him that she found the note and she got to the house. She found him wounded. If she wouldn't have gotten there in time, he would definitely be dead. She basically dragged him to safety. Um, and so, you know, the house and all of the evidence inside of it, including the body, are now burning. And so he's like lamenting the fact that all of the proof he had that his theories were true are now up in smoke, literally. Yeah, and clearly the killer had intended to burn him with the evidence, but uh, luckily Gianna got there. Not successful. Not successful, killer. Uh, back at Olga's, he spots a drawing on her wall that is very 
very similar to this image of this uh, child stabbing the, the parental figure to death. I mean, it is a, it is a spitting image. Uh, it's such a specific visual. If I was this girl's father, I would be very worried that she was drawing such images. Um, and so, you know, he interrogates Olga. He's like, where the fuck did you see this? And she finally tells him, she's like, it's at the Leonardo da Vinci Middle School. So now we're breaking into middle schools. Like, these fuckers have no problem breaking into any place. But now you're breaking into a middle school. And this really is like, the big final moment here. Everything that happens in the school is kind of building up to the final climax. I got to say, you know, location after location in this movie, it never fails to impress. You come upon another location here, and I just, I can't take my eyes off of it. This place is massive. There's so many rooms here. Uh, they cover so much of the territory within the school, and it's just this very creepy, unsettling environment. It's a great final place uh final environment to have this big final setting within yeah and they do the same uh the same goblin track as the house of the screaming child it's almost like that's the designated uh exploring a creepy building song yeah and it's not exactly what i would envision uh you know being the track to play alongside like a let's go explore and have like a scooby-doo mystery moment uh, to explore the setting. I love it because it's it's so well, unexpected. Because yeah. it's not even a song. It's like funky. And you're yeah, like, it's, it's the complete opposite of the tone that I would anticipate. But because of that, like in this moment, I will say like it does create this kind of like building anticipation. You're like, oh, fuck, like shit's about to go down. So it strangely like works in this moment for me. I will say there are moments where certain tracks have not worked for me. But everything here with this finale, wouldn't expect it. I dig it. I dig what they do with the soundtrack for the final the final chunk of the film. And and so they come upon the library. They're going through all these folders. Uh, they're basically looking through the art files of the students from from what would be the 50s, the 1950s. And and Marcus does come across the image, the same visual that inspired all of these other illustrations that he has seen, you know, stemming from it. Uh, and as he's as he's looking through these images, Gianna does go off and she's like, "Listen, I think I should go call the police. Like, okay, at this point, you're going to call the police. Fine, whatever. Uh, and so she goes off by herself, and he realizes that she's gone. You know, he can't find her. So he takes off, rushing through the building to look for her, and he discovers her alongside this chalkboard, where, again, there's a visual of a hanging man. We saw that earlier with the baby doll. Uh, but now there's an image of a man being hung on this chalkboard, drawn in chalk. And he looks over, you know, he turns and looks over and he sees that she has, in fact, been stabbed uh, and is leaning against the wall, kind of like bleeding out. Uh, so for a moment there, you think that Gianna is is like going to be the next victim. You think she's going to die. And they have this very sad, tender moment together. Yeah, I think one of the giveaways that she isn't going to die, she'll survive, is that Argento doesn't really do kills that happen without a big ceremony the, so the fact that there's no like kill sequence leading up to her death you're you're you can be pretty sure that she's not gonna actually die and i'm happy about that because honestly yeah. i i really like her character one little thing that she does too like the way they end this moment the two of them together she does another one of those little cute little hand gestures and in a way to me it almost seems like they're implying like she's still okay she's still conscious she's still with it so i like she does make it She's she survives. I'm happy about that. But, you know, so now it's really been it's down to the count. Like it's been revealed that he's found this visual and this this image of what he's been looking for, this illustration. And on the illustration, he does express that the name of who drew it is on 
the, the the drawing. It was signed by the artist, and it's perfectly timed for the reveal of who the killer is because he's now aware of who who the person is, and they're there behind him. They are there in the building. They are the one that stabbed Gianna, and it is revealed to be none other than dun dun dun. Go for it. You say it, Carlo. <laughs> it's Carlo. That. Fucking faggot! <laughs> oh my god! I, I don't mean it. I don't mean it. Uh, but no, seriously. Um, what a twist! Did not anticipate it first time I saw it. This Carlo has really kind of faded into the backstory for a bit here. Um, and again, the personal demons he's been struggling with seem very much like their own side story. It didn't really seem like it was at all tied into what was going on. Uh, but when it is revealed to be Carlo, and he's standing there with a gun, you know, basically threatening to kill Marcus, he has this really great monologue piece here that is very well delivered. There's a lot of passion. Uh, you know, his eyes are filled with tears. And you you strangely feel for the character here. You really think, oh, wow, like, again, there's a lot of turmoil in this individual. And I don't necessarily understand what he's going through. But like, I do sense that this person is breaking. This isn't a killer who I'm like, oh, that fucker, I want to see him get his just desserts. This is a reveal where I think, oh, God, this person is tortured. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And it's uh, sad for the relationship between the two of them, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is a really great moment, you know, before he has a chance to actually uh, make a move and, and injure Marcus. The police do show up. They come busting through the window. They shoot at Carlo. They take chase. Uh, and and the, the pace picks up here for a minute. You know, they chase after him. He scales the wall and he gets to the other side of the of um, the the fence that surrounds the building. And as he runs out into the street, he's distracted and he runs right into what is like a garbage truck. And this leads to what I think is one of the single most shocking moments um, <laughs> on camera that I've ever seen in, in film. Um, this whole final moment with Carlo and the conclusion that happens here is truly horrifying. <laughs> I mean, I mean, as a human being in general, this is one of my greatest fears. Getting tied to a goddamn vehicle and dragged down a street at full speed. And then what ends up happening to him here? I mean, holy shit. This is a... Just absolutely mind-blowing execution of a death sequence yeah and it's actually it's pretty complicated the way that they did it too um they covered the that street with uh with essentially like a padding so that they could actually drag him instead of using the stunt double and do it at full speed and even when they go around that bend and he hits his head on the curb and is knocked out they replaced the curb with a, a, a foam curb so that they could do that at full speed as well, hit his head into the the curb. Oh my god, this poor fucking guy! I mean, he goes out so much worse than I feel he really deserved. <laughs> um, and and then like, and not only that, like, so yeah, you see him hit his head on the curb, and it is so fucking brutal. Like you feel it. You're watching it, and you actually are like, ugh. I felt that impact, and he's laying there. He's all bloody, but he's still alive. And then for him to then have his head like run over by another vehicle and you see it coming and you're like, no, 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 like don't do it. And then it fucking just runs over his head and just fucking destroys it. I mean, talk about some great practical effects. This conclusion for this character is phenomenal. Yeah, they did that by, um, it's two shots combined in one where they just, you know, didn't move the camera in between shots. So it looked continuous. One is, the car starts with the tire right at the actor's head and then drives away in reverse. And they just reverse that shot in post. And then the second shot is the car with the tire at the same spot by his head, move the actor out and put in the fake head and drive forward and, and crush it. 
and combining those two shots, one in reverse, one in regular motion, uh, to get it one single shot. I've seen this moment multiple times, and even watching it before, you know, the we sat down to review this, I still wince when I see this. It's truly one of the most graphic, like head um, implosions or head, you know, head crushing moments uh, I've ever seen on camera, and it, it's just so flawless. It's really well executed, um, and just a, a, truly a violent note to go out on, on for this character. Um, and so after this, you know, we, we come to the conclusion, we learn that Gianna has in fact survived thanks to a surgery. Um, we have this final dramatic moment of Marcus back in front of the fountain by the blue bar. And he's still like, he's still haunted. He's like, you know, this still isn't making sense because if I put the pieces of, t- of all this together, there's no way Carlo could have killed Helga. Like I was with him having a conversation when this happened. So it, it just does not make sense. And it kind of wraps up with a final reveal of that that leather gloved hand. Like the killer is still on the loose. And um, it is like one of those final like moments where you're like, oh my God, are you fucking kidding me? Like I really thought this had wrapped up and there's still more to this. Like the layers to this onion, there's so many of them. And that's really just a sign of great storytelling. Um, because technically like that could have been the conclusion, but what happens after this is so much more of a payoff. Uh, Talk about a fucking great ending. Like what's about to happen here is one of my favorite conclusions to horror cinema in general. The reveal that's about to come up here is the chef's kiss. Yeah, agreed. It's, it's a very excellent and, and unexpected. Yeah, so he goes back to the house. Again, he's breaking in. Uh, he's removing the tape and walking into Helga's house to, uh, you know, explore the art in the walls. Because he was, again, he was convinced that there was a piece of art that was missing. There was something that was missing that he saw there. Something was different. He's recalling the conversations that he had with Carlo. And he realizes that it's not a piece of art that was missing. It was actually, it was a reflection. What he had seen was a reflection of somebody. And right when he realizes that, he steps aside, and in the reflection, who is it that we see? Bum, bum, bum. It's his mom, Carlo's mom, Martha. Who would have fucking thought, out of all the people, to be the maniacal murderer behind all of this nonsense, the last fucking person I would have thought of was sensible Martha with her acting career. But, I mean, what a reveal. And my goodness, does she completely, like, shift her tone and her overall approach to the character. She surprisingly enough, makes for quite an intimidating figure. Even though she's like a petite little older woman, uh, she's still fucking like, she's out for blood. Like she is out to kill Marcus and she is determined to get her revenge. Yeah, great, uh, great immediate uh, chase sequence. Um, And I like that cuts back to show the full the full Freudian uh, flashback to, to give the full context. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unpack there with that flashback, too. You know, you learn that that she, Martha was obviously struggling with her own demons. She had a lot of resentment towards her husband for having to give up her dreams of pursuing her career. Um, obviously, she has a child who has a very um, obvious queer... Uh, personality traits. I mean, he's wearing those goddamn Mary Janes, you know? But she has a a son who is definitely, like, exhibiting very gay tendencies. I'll put it that way. And she's clearly just a a very uh, tortured individual herself with, with kind of like the route her life is taking and everything that's going on around her. And so it's, in fact, it's, it's Martha that killed her husband. It wasn't Carlo, as has kind of been implied through these illustrations. Because if you look at these illustrations, you see what is very much obvious to be Carlo holding the knife and the body laying beside him. But Carlo doesn't 
pick up the knife until he discovers that his father is dead beside him on the floor. So you learn that it was, in fact, Martha that that was behind all of this and that she is the one that uh, basically uh, ensured that her husband's body was not discovered. And thus Carlo has grown up with this really like just weird relationship with, I think, his masculinity in general, and thus the whole homosexual undertones. There's so much to unpack here for both characters, for Martha and for Carlo. I really think they could have deep dived into this even more. But for the era, for this being the conclusion uh, and for this being the motivation for why she's doing what she's doing, I really think this is one of the best payoffs you get for a killer reveal uh, honestly, kind of like in the genre in general. She really is, in my opinion, one of the best overall killer reveals I've seen to date. Yeah, agreed. And I actually like that they leave, because the movie ends up ending abruptly after in the next scene, I like that they leave it for us to think about. Because uh, it would have been a little... I don't like when there's a bunch of just slapped on exposition. Um, I, I, I like it better that it's just like, whoa, you see that flashback and, and you, you're left to interpret. Oh yeah. I mean, there's like, like I said, there's a lot to unpack, but it's not just like spelled out for you. Like you sit there and you can watch that sequence and there's so many little things that are hinted at and so many little things that you've, you've kind of picked up on leading up to this point. Like you mentioned at the beginning, the breadcrumbs, there's a lot of them for both her character and for Carlo. Uh, And so when you see this final flashback, there's a lot of conclusions that you can make as the viewer. Um, They're not forced down your throat. You know, it's not like they're like, this is what happened. And this is every aspect of what happened. And these are the facts. And there's no other if, and, or but about it. They're like, this is kind of left open-ended for you to kind of make your determination of what you think happened and what her reasoning was and why she did what she did. But it's layered. It's super fucking layered, and I appreciate that about it, and I like that it does leave some uh, elements to be kind of vague. So you, as the vil- uh, as the viewer, you're kind of left, like, basting in it. And, you know, after viewing this, this whole reveal, like, I was left thinking about this moment for a long time. Like, I really didn't just wrap up the movie and wrap up my notes and step away from it. Like, I sat there and thought, like, wow, this is really still leaving an effect with me. I've seen this movie multiple times, and I still leave this sequence thinking a lot of things. And that's a sign of great writing. That's a sign of great filmmaking. Um, and then the sequence that follows it as well, like is just f- one of the best conclusions to a horror movie ever. Honestly, in my opinion, it is one of the best wrap up, uh, antagonist conclusions that I've ever seen. Like what happens to this woman is so horribly violent and I'm all for it. Yeah. Great. Great. This whole chase that happens, you know, she pursues him to the elevator. Um, they're they're struggling, and as she's struggling with him, her necklace gets caught in in the the gears of the elevator. So as it starts to go up, uh, it pulls it literally pulls the necklace through the meat of her throat. You see her throwing up out her mouth, drooling up out her mouth. It's such a smooth cut through the flesh of the uh, of her neck, and she is fucking decapitated. And he just stands there and looks down as like the blood pools, and it is a very deep shade of red a fitting ending to a movie that is uh, a truly just honestly a fucking masterpiece beginning to end that final kill holy fuck one of the best kills i've ever seen yeah it's great and it's actually worth pointing out that it doesn't the elevator is not just going he sees that her necklace got caught and he presses the up button to to start the elevator to and it decapitates her 
as he should. I mean, at this point, like, let's be fucking real. Like, this woman has killed multiple people. Yeah. Uh, this woman is obviously unhinged. She's trying to kill him. I know she's small and frail, but she is, she's a force in that goddamn fedora. And she chops him in the shoulder right before it. So. Yeah, I mean, she's definitely looking to kill him. So he's got to do what he's got to do. And he does it in, in, in high style because he takes her out in a blaze of glory. And it, it really is just a great finale. And, and that is that is the conclusion to Deep Red. Holy fuck. I mean, if you're going to talk about a strong ending to a movie, I can't think of many stronger finales, to be honest. One of the best things about the movie, too, is that Argento didn't cheat at all. If you go back and watch the starting of the movie, the first time that he goes to Helga's apartment when she's been killed and he's about to pull her off the glass, when he walks through the hallway and looks down the side hall, they do cut to a shot of that mirror where she is clearly in the mirror. Oh, my God. Yeah, and no one catches it ever. God damn, but you did because you are a fucking master of the craft and you know everything about this movie. (laughs) That's the thing is I didn't I didn't catch it the first time I watched the movie, but because I was like, Oh, there's no way. Like he obviously cheated that in at the end. But no, if you rewind to the starring in the movie and watch it, she's clearly, you know, Martha's clearly in that reflection in the starting of the movie. You know who the killer is if you super paid attention. I'm going to start bringing you on the show just to have like cliff notes because because everything you're giving me, it makes the show sound so much more legitimate. Um, I mean, I love fucking horror movies, but I don't come with the fucking knowledge that you do. So holy shit, you just elevated this episode tenfold. Troy's going to be so fucking jealous. He's going to be so mad. Uh, But wow, like what a, a great episode. I'm really thankful to have had you here to talk about a title that you clearly are like very passionate about and have a great knowledge of, like you brought so much to this episode. I really think our listeners are going to be blown away and it's just going to make them really hungry to see like the work that you are creating. Cause with a knowledge of the material like that, I have no doubt that bath bomb is going to be an amazing homage to the works like this that came before it. Well, thank you. I hope you're right. I've uh, seen this movie far too many times. I don't know if you noticed before we started recording the episode and we had our cameras on, but uh, right behind me on my couch is one of the original uh, release posters for this movie. <laughs> oh my God, look at you. I mean, I yeah, I trust that you fucking know this movie because the, the, the material that you've produced is makes it very clear. So yeah, I, I'm super impressed by your knowledge of the film. We're going to have to have you on again soon. I know Troy's going to want to just so he can pick your brain about another title. But seriously, this was awesome chatting with you. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, do me a quick favor just for our listeners uh, kind of sound off like, you know, your social media platforms and, and some of the things you might want them to look into just from the horse's mouth. I want them to know where they can find you and what they can look into to see some of your work. Sure. Thank you. Um, so even though we did have a successful uh, crowdfunding campaign, we're now, because we met our goal on Indiegogo, we're in their uh, in-demand program. So we can keep the the campaign open indefinitely, which we intend to do to, to raise additional funds if they're needed. And uh, so if you, bathbombhorror.com uh, redirects you directly to the campaign. Uh, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, we are at bathbombhorror. And as for myself personally, I only use Instagram, and it's my name, at uh, Colin G. Cooper, all one word, no no periods or underscores or spaces or anything like that. Go go find him. Go follow him and go support Bath Bomb. I mean, 
already, like, the promo art looks amazing. I can't wait to see more from this. And it's definitely a project that all of our listeners, especially our queer listeners, let's be real, like, this is something I think we'd be hungry for. Give me some queer giallo any day of the week. I can't wait to see what you produce with this. I'm sure it's going to be amazing. Please keep us updated. I will, for sure. Thanks awesome. so much for having me on. Of course. Thank you so much for joining me. And listeners, if that's not some incentive to go find some of his work and follow him on social media, I don't know what is. We love a true horror fan and someone who knows the material. Uh, and, you know, speaking of individuals who know the material, next week I am going to be having another guest on, uh, my very good friend and my producer and assistant director for Meet Zach Shieldwatcher is going to be coming on to join us for a review of his favorite insect horror film, The Nest. Uh, so I have never seen The Nest. I am very ready to view The Nest based off of what I have seen about it. Um, I love anything with killer insects or roaches, so sign me up. And I know that this is right up his alley. So listeners, make sure to tune in. Uh, but other than that, Thank you all for sticking with me for this very special episode of Dark Knight of the Podcast, which is myself and my special co-host, Colin G. Cooper. Until next week, guys, thank you for joining Dark Knight of the Podcast, and I'll be seeing you and hearing you very soon. Have a great night. Bye.